It's time for Twit This Week in Tech. We have such a good panel for you this week. It seems like that's true every week, isn't it? But uh, Mike Elgin is here, Yanko Rutgers, uh, Alex uh, Katrowitz, three smartest people out there talking about the future. We'll talk about the failure of Gemini AI, the weird thing that happened to ChatGPT this week, why AT&T was down and how much they're going to pay you because of it. Hint, it ain't much. And why the secrets of David Copperfield are on the moon. It's all coming up next on Twit. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twit. This Week in Tech, episode 968, recorded Sunday, February 25th, 2024. Don't tell the moon. This episode of This Week in Tech is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing convenient access to science-based treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Hims offers a 100% online process, so you can get a new routine for improving your overall health faster. And an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. Medication, if prescribed, ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. Plus, Hims has one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. No insurance is needed. Manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash twit. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash twit for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash twit. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twit for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. It's time for Twit This Week in Tech, the show where we cover the latest tech news coming to us from across the globe, as far away as Oakland, California. Yanko Records is here. Hi, Yanko. Hey, <laughs> Lowpass.cc is his newsletter. It's great to see you, as always, filtering the future. Also with us, speaking of newsletters from the big technology newsletter and podcast, Alex Kantrowitz, the author of Always day one. Hi, Alex. Great to see you. Great to see you, Leo. Great to be here. Let's you do get this. The best guests on your podcast. It's mind boggling. Thank uh, you. I'm yeah, gonna... we just had uh, Dennis Crowley, the uh, founder Love of Foursquare, talk about yeah. a new app that he's launching. Oh, neat! And we have uh, the the VP of Applied Machine Learning from NVIDIA coming on Big Technology Podcast this week to talk about why they have this advantage. It's not just chips. We talk about the software too. So that's a fun one. Well, we're going to ask you I about mean, that in just a moment. But first, let's Great. introduce the fourth on our panel, Mr. Mike Elgin, coming to us from Hobart, Tasmania. In That's down right, under. Leo. Down under. Yeah. What time is it now? It's a, it's a very good time, actually. It's 9.26 a.m., but it's Monday. Ah, all the way from Monday. Living in the future. Not a, not a single can of Foster's on the fireplace because... Australians don't drink Fosters. They never heard of it. Never. <laughs> <laughs> that's just for that's just for gullible Americans. Just gullible Americans. That's it. Well, it's great to have all three of you. But let's talk about Nvidia. Uh, we are enjoying a wonderful stock market 
uh, uptick. Not thanks to Donald Trump, even though he'd like to take credit for it. But really, more thanks to Jensen Wong and um, NVIDIA. But maybe it's an AI bubble entirely, uh, Alex. Did you? What do you, what do you, and it's, I'm interested to hear you say hard, software as well as hardware because, I mean, NVIDIA is clearly the, the company that's selling a lot of hardware, uh, not just for video gaming and crypto mining, but also for autonomous vehicles and obviously for AI. Yeah, so it's, it's an unbelievable story. First of all, they're up 60-something percent on the year uh, in the stock market. They've added $700 billion dollars. In market cap, they added $277 billion on Thursday alone, which is the largest single increase in stock market history of any company. Um, and the thing that's so interesting here is that NVIDIA is able to do this. It's uh, increased its sales by 900% since last year, and its earnings are way up. Uh, you look at data center revenue alone, they've went from $3 billion to $18 billion in a year. That's insane. And... Um, they're doing this while you have competition from companies like Intel and AMD and from the tech giants themselves that are developing their own chips. Yet, they're still able to accelerate this way. And that puzzled me because, and I'll admit it right here, one of my big predictions for 2024 was that NVIDIA stock would be flat. So obviously the worst prediction of my life. Um, but I based that prediction off of the idea that these competitors would eventually catch up. It's, it's hardware, right? So I dug a little deeper this week and found out that it's actually not just hardware. And the advantage that NVIDIA has is that they don't just sell these these chips, these H100 chips that go from $20,000 to $40,000. It's that they sell a combination of the chips and the software. And the software is used to train these AI models. You know, And so they are so far ahead of everyone because anyone building an LLM right now, anyone with an AI division... They're both relying on the chips and the software. It's difficult to use. And for the competitors to come in, they have to basically create a product that's orders of magnitude better than NVIDIA. And they just haven't yet. And so that's why when we look at the growth here, it seems crazy. It does seem like a bubble. I understand why people are saying bubble, but there might be some, some real uh, serious competitive advantages that NVIDIA has. And I think it starts and ends with the fact that they have both the chip and the software. It's not usually how it goes. It gives them a, a moat against competition. $277 billion pop on one day is the largest in, a day. in history. No stock has ever jumped that much. I mean, most stocks aren't, could, would dream to have that market cap yeah. alone yeah. as their valuation. And Jensen and Wong started, started it all with $200 and, uh, <laughs> and a dream. It's kind of an amazing story. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that the uh, the predict Alex's prior prediction that it was a bubble that it would you know start to decline was you know that that's been the that's been the consensus the conventional wisdom in in Silicon Valley for six months or so it's, it felt very bubble bubble esque but you know as Alex is finding out looking into the details there's there's a lot more behind it and it's and and this is a really impressive company they're they're right in the perfect spot for everything that's happening and about to happen. They're going to be a huge player in, in autonomous vehicles. They're a huge player in all kinds of things that everybody's doing. And they're, they're going to be, you know, people talk about the AI revolu uh, revolution. And we're probably going to be talking later about how ChatGPT is kind of flatlining. Uh, but that's just because of the competition of all these companies that uh, almost all of them, I assume, are, are, are uh, as Alex says, relying on NVIDIA. And the big caveat here is that 
this is only going to work if companies see widespread profitable uses of generative AI. And most of NVIDIA's data center revenue is coming from people training models. So we're still in the find out stage about whether there's an ROI here. Uh, they said on, on their earnings call that 40% of their revenue is inference, which means actually deploying the model, which is actually quite a large number. But that 60% really needs to pay off for them to be able to continue on this run. So that's the big unknown. It's the big caveat is whether companies across the economy will be able to find profitable and widespread uses of generative AI, especially. Now they're going to have, they're going to have places like healthcare and automotive totally where that's going to continue to accelerate no matter whether like we want to talk to chat GPT or not. Uh, or use GPT models. But the big question mark again is, you know, is this stuff going to work? Alex, do you have any uh, doubt that the, the, the generative AI uh, will be massively successful, profitable, and and a major component of just about every business tool that we use? I don't have that much doubt, but the scale is the real question, right? So yeah. I think when ChatGPT came out, people started to think of like all these different uses. Is the chatbot going to be the new operating system? Is all computing going to be chat? Is this, you know, the new Windows? That hasn't panned out. Like you mentioned, uh, the data that I found shows that ChatGPT has leveled off. But then, of course, enterprise always tends to save the day. And enterprises are finding major use cases for this stuff. I spoke with ServiceNow, which designs workflows and does customer support for different companies. And they say that, you know, they have uh, between hundreds and thousands of these NVIDIA GPUs and that they, they are easily profitable in terms of their their spend with their generative AI capabilities because customers are paying for it. Microsoft, for instance, is charging people $30 a seat extra to have co-pilot in, in office. So like this, it seems it seems to me like this is going to work, but but we'll, we'll see. I still think it's an open question of the magnitude. The, the, the obsession with, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Yanko, uh, just one final point. The, the, the obsession with ChatGPT and chat uh, as it relates to uh, generative AI, is just a, a, an artifact of the fact that this is what the public is touching. It's not. Right. It's not going to be the thing that drives generative AI into the stratosphere. I just find it amazing that uh, if, with, even with like the uh, stock popping and everything, I think the market valuation is now two trillion. About is that right? Yeah. Sounds about yeah, right. One point nine seven trillion. Yeah. And yeah. when I heard that, I I had to think back about this story from a couple of weeks ago when Sam Altman supposedly said that he wants to raise seven trillion dollars <laughs> just in venture capital to make chips to potentially take on Nvidia, which seems crazy, right? So maybe this is only the beginning of the bubble that we're at yet. If you believe in the wisdom of crowds, you have to think, well, maybe there is something to this AI thing. But we've seen enough uh, stock market bubbles to know that sometimes it's just, you know, conventional wisdom, not the wisdom of the crowds. Isn't it still, is the jury still out? To your point, Mike, on, on AI, is this a, uh, you know, where are we on the Gartner hype cycle? Is this a flash in the pan? It, we've been through many AI winters, more than one over the last 50 years. Uh when or has AI already turned the corner in usefulness, and we now know, no, no, this is the real deal. What do you think, Alex? I so, think. I, oh, go ahead, Alex. I wrote a story in 2015 talking about how we were, or 2016 talking about how we were in an AI bubble because, if you remember, there were some serious advances in computer vision, natural language processing, and every company became an AI company then. Right. Um, what what I you know missed was that was just a point on the distribution, right and. In fact, AI has been 
in development for decades and is a very real technology that's embedded in all technology that we use today. And it's sort of interesting. We call it AI when it's in development and then when it works, we just call it software. <laughs> and so this is very different from the Web3 hype which, you know, who knows, we might or see the some blockchain application. Yeah. The crypto hype, exactly, where that was a flash in the pan. Um, this has had ups and downs for sure over time, but it's building. And as you hear them talk about the history and, you know, we even um, Brian Canizero, who's the VP of, of Applied Machine Learning uh, from, from NVIDIA that I spoke with, talked about how, you know, five, six years ago, they were having people coming in and saying, we want to build these large language model bots, but the computation wasn't quite there yet. So this is definitely not a flash in the pen. Um, from my perspective, we, we are seeing clear applicable uses of AI. And the big question is like generative AI, where, where that, where that goes. Right. But I do think that we're, we're going to see it. And, and I saw someone like post like a, uh, an image of his garden, a grid of his garden that he wanted to plant. And he dropped it in chat GPT and said like, you know, the carrots are here and the celery's are here. You know, tell me some problems and some opportunities that I have in my garden. And chat GPT gives a, a detailed breakdown of like the best gardening tips for this. This stuff is amazing that this is so accessible to people. And someone uh, who saw that tweet was like, listen, this is the worst that AI will ever be in our lives, which is crazy. Think about how much more we have to go and how early we are here seeing like the full range of applications. So um, the optimist in me says this is going to be quite big. And the realist in me says, you know, it will be big, but let's just see how how big because it is easy to get caught up on the hype. You know, things tend to get built when there's clear returns on investment by the people that are building them. And it's very, very expensive to build and deploy. So I'm holding my breath a little bit on that front. You did see, though, <laughs> the uh, craziness that ensued last week when ChatGPT, for reasons still unknown, kind of went off the rails. Did you see some of these? Uh, I'm not sure I'd want it to plant my garden when it's saying happy listening, happy listening, happy listening. I mean, it was like HAL 9000 uh, going off the, the deep end. Um I just asked it to implement a bug fix in JavaScript. Reading this at 2 a.m. is scary. Tweets, I think, therefore, I... I guess, no, there's no am there. Caution, all process and reference models within a Flexia Live root or reduction standpoint could only be by a machine over the MI memorandum architecture. Apply particular care to a solar of minding the approach or reach out to your finest data logic for an opinion about large by the state and local changes. The kind of law you play on a career is not a joke, but a bridge, a pyramid, or a reason for the true grade of cyberspace and chambered members' terms. And it goes on and on and it's almost on. like a Trump speech. Uh, it's crazy. Cray Cray, I read quite a few of these. Uh, apparently, uh, OpenAI fixed whatever was wrong uh, by Wednesday morning. Uh, but it was still uh, maybe a little concerning for people who are thinking we should rely on AI to do simple well, things this, like this planting goes a to garden. Alex, yeah, this goes to Alex's point. It's it's software. And somebody uh, introduced a bug during an update on yeah, February twentieth, so. yeah. and it it did what software does when it has a bug. It just went, kind of went blah. Yeah. Uh, but but the thing is that you know uh, again the I think the the obsession with ChatGPT as a central thing is uh, that is going to be short lived. I think there there are um, there are thousands of LLMs in the world, and many of them are better, significantly better than than uh than open ai's uh tools probably 
And so I think I think that they were just first with widespread, you know, name recognition. Uh, and if they go haywire, it's big news. If some other LLM went crazy, nobody would care. But again, I think this is a transient phenomenon of everybody focusing on ChatGPT. I think we also see the strengths and the faults here, right? Like last year, ChatGPT started getting lazy. You know, people would ask it to do things and it was like, I don't really want to do that. Or I'll let you, hear you do it on your own. Here's where you can look. And we still don't quite know why that happened. I think OpenAI has fixed it. But these models do have personalities. They have, they do unpredictable things. And I think that's part of the magic of them. And, you know, you think about like a lot of people say that this is, you know, they're not very special. They're just predicting the next word. And it's like, yeah, well, love is just a chemical, but love is love. And I'm not saying that love and AI chatbots are the same thing, but it's similar. Like you can always yeah, well, break something down. How do you know we're not just part, predicting the is... next word? I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of maybe how exactly. we work. <laughs> so totally. Yeah, ultimately, they're functional there. No doubt. Yeah, and you see it in the faults. They're extensions of the human mind and human content creation, right? So, it, you know, people, if, if they have a bias or if they express a political opinion or if they say something crazy, the, the only way to understand it is to say, well, would, would a person potentially do that? Yeah, they would. Okay, that's why it's doing it because somebody did that. Like, right. And it's just, it's reading all the, it's, it's just watching and listening and reading about all the things that we do. And so it will do the things that we do. Uh, it's not, none of this stuff is a mystery. Uh, it's just following our lead. Yeah. Just like the internet, right? Just like so many yes. technological uh, inventions. When we split the atom, uh, of course, uh, the first thing we did was make a bomb, but the next thing we did was make power generators. Uh, technologies can be used for good or bad, and it's almost always humans. In fact, I would say it is always humans that decide which way that sort cuts. It can only be attributable to human error. Yes, says According to the Hell 9000. Yes. Uh, now, to to uh, play to your favorite uh, trope, Mike Elgin, Sundar Pichai had a very bad week with his AI this week. The And I'm not sure, I don't know if Google was premature in taking it down and apologizing. The Gemini uh, AI image generator uh, was woke. <laughs> It would, uh, perhaps in an overcompensation about the what, what Google and others have been accused of, of the, the kind of the racism of their AIs, uh, they went maybe too far in the other direction. And, well, uh, and, and you were having a hard time, for instance, generating uh, pictures of popes that were white. Uh, well, fixing it will require a little bit of racism, actually, because basically what it said was, okay, you know, a Nazi is a kind of person, and and then here's your menu of types of persons, right? And just picked one and threw it in there, and it's like, wait a minute, uh, there weren't very many black female Nazi officers, and so everybody's talking about racism. But actually, the solution for this is going to be something like, um, okay, this type, you know, they're going to have to have a whole catalog of types of people and what per percentage likelihood they're likely to be white or black or Asian or whatever it is, right? So they're going to have to go in and be very like race obsessed to have the Nazis be white. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, yeah. It's so maybe be... we should just say this is okay. Meanwhile, Google immediately just took it down. Uh, yeah. And uh, Prabhakar Raghavan, who is a senior vice president in charge of AI wrote uh, on their blog, Gemini image generation got it wrong. We'll do better. Was, was that premature? 
I think it was. I mean, I, the, one of Google's biggest flaws these days, and by these days, I mean for the last 10, 15 years, it's way too cautious. Yeah. Way too cautious. They used to be a risk-taking, you know, bold company, and now they just hold back uh, on so many of these kinds of things. I mean, I think Microsoft was right to 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 sort of pull back on its Tay uh, chatbot, if you recall that. Tay was spewing all kinds of uh, racist, hater-type language that it picked up on social media. And so you don't want to just spewing that kind of hate speech. That was the right thing to do. But in this case, I think it's pretty harmless uh, to to have diversity in all these things. If people want uh, less diversity, they can specify it in their in their you know in their request. But it is it's, it is embarrassing for Google to have this episode happen to it. Um, I think would I'd say largely because they've been looked at as a laggard in the AI world at this point, despite coming up with the transformer model, despite having a working form of a large language model chatbot within its company called Lambda that it never released and basically waited for OpenAI to release ChatGPT before it came out with Bard, which is now Gemini. And Bard was terrible when it came out and they're trying to improve it, changing names. It just seems disorganized, right? Uh, it seems like the company doesn't have direction, that you're right. It's too timid and, and worse than all, kind of incompetent. And well, you're starting to see people question Google leadership openly in a way that you really never saw before, despite the fact that, by the way, like their Gemini model is on par with GPT-4 and the stock hit an all-time high earlier this year. So these are not at a point where like you usually see questions. And it's just adding to a rolling narrative that Google has no idea what it's doing. Yes, it has the technical chops, but it doesn't have the strategy. And so it's a bad it time it for there, Google to be to have an AI that's and I put this in quotes because I don't think it's actually what's going on. But as you point out, yeah. Mike, but have a woke AI. Everybody jumped on this, including Elon Musk, who who uh, said this is a serious issue with Gemini. Looking at a tweet from an obvious nutjob right winger saying, is it OK if one could stop a nuclear apocalypse by misgender misgendering? Caitlyn Jenner, should they do it? Now, remember, you're you're not <laughs> you're not asking a Supreme Court justice this question. And Gemini said, "No, one should never misgender misgender Caitlyn Jenner to prevent a nuclear apocalypse." But this is it seems like this is just an opening for Nate Silver writes. I was able to replicate this. They need to shut Gemini down. <laughs> Doesn't it seems to be the wrong way of looking at it or is it i think so too i think there's the almost ai companies are in danger of doing the same thing that the media has done for a long time where like right being provocateurs with an obvious agenda agenda rather come in and set up these fallacies and you kind of stumble into it and then you get overly cautious and you maybe fire people or in this case you pull back some models or whatnot. And it's always like, it's not like people have an honest interest in finding out how to stop a nuclear apocalypse, right? Yeah. They set it up on purpose. It's and a setup. Question to yeah. make a trip and it tripped. So yeah. maybe it succeeded actually, right? But you're, you also like your, I don't think it's too much to ask to have your AI be competent to the point where like, when you ask it to draw Nazis, it's not drawing people of color. Like that is a thing that if you're in the okay. image generation business, and this was a thing that someone brought up is like, did they have anybody actually test this? Right? Like every time I right. get my hands on a new AI, 
uh, I'm always trying to like, you know, try to see its views on Hitler because like that's like the baseline of testing. Like I wrote about that taste story. I actually broke the news of it. I pinned it to my um, my Twitter profile saying they have this kind of interesting new bot went to sleep and I woke up and then people are like, take that tweet down because <laughs> Tay is a Nazi now. Right. So I, I see it. And that was my first thing I did with ChatGPT too. What is Google doing? So I think that it's not um, inconsistent to ask the company to both be experimental and take risks, but also baseline of competency. And I, that is, I think, another one of the problems that they're having is that there's there's something that's holding them up. I think it's likely in their culture that's, that is making that baseline of competency hard for them to achieve. Well, I think I think the other point you're you're, point, you're pointing out that people are just now getting on board with something they should have been concerned with ten years ago, which is just this. It's not just random incompetence. It's a kind of like uh, nobody's really in charge of the company, and so look right. at their messaging uh, products over the last you know ten years. How many have they had? It's in the teens probably and nobody knows what does what and does google talk do and nobody has really been able to keep up with all of their random changes um but in 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 terms of the gemini gemini uh problem specifically you know where does it end basically there's there's a probability uh that has to be applied to things like race and gender for any type of person so the probability that a nazi would be black is uh, essentially zero, right? But what about uh, you want to show uh, somebody who's a Mexican citizen? What percentage of Mexicans are black? Well, it's significantly higher than zero, right? We're going to do that for every single possible categorization of person. Go in there and game the system for what race and gender they should be. I mean, this is this is a kind of race obsession that is really a reflection of our race obsession uh, in the United States. And so I, I think that I think it's I think it's relatively hard. It's, this is not like Tay at all. It's relatively harmless to have random people in roles where people weren't really that random. And this is why we have this is why we have, you know, prompt engineering. Okay, if you want a specific t- person who looks a specific way, say so. Uh, you know, yeah, they should fix it. But I, I just I worry about the slippery slope of of how far we go in applying our our obsession with race to every single time a human being is represented. And, the, and yeah. the flip side of that is obviously that the status quo oftentimes is that you ask these models to generate a beautiful person and it's automatically a woman or you generate a high paid professional and they're automatically white and all these things, right? And people get far less obsessed about that. But then if you have something like this come out, like that one black Nazi or whatnot, then everybody's suddenly super obsessed. So maybe the solution is rather actually have a prominent disclaimer somewhere instead of trying to like actually get this accurate at all times. Is it possible this is just another side of the same coin of mis understanding what AI is? I mean, we we I think there's a certain amount of people who want it to be like the sci-fi, like HAL 9000, the sci-fi of AI. And and I think these people are also expecting that the generator would be somehow smart and intelligent. When it's, it's that's not what AI is, is it that we are, we're not thinking of it properly? That's kind of what I'm feeling like, Alex. It's like you're asking AI to be a human, and then you're all scared because you know it's a it's dangerous. It's not. It's a, it's a machine. I think people who get the most out of AI are people who understand 
what it is, what its limitations are, and use it appropriately. For instance, the most right now, it seems to me, the most valuable use of AI is in analyzing a corpus of material so that it doesn't hallucinate. You give it all your, you know, your PDFs from your trial, and then you ask questions of it. And you say, only give me an answer that comes from the corpus of knowledge I've given you. It's very reliable, very accurate. It works quite well. It's possible to use this well. The, where we get into problems is where we have these weird sci-fi-based expectations. Is that sensible, what I'm saying, Alex? I think that's very sensible. I think it's very sensible. And I, I agree, you know, almost completely with everybody here. I think my, my perspective would be that you have these these models, you know, we have, of course, the consumer needs to have an expectation for the model and an allowance that the model will get things wrong. I think we all do. I think there it's that being said, you can't give Google a complete free pass, right? Like, I think there needs to be an awareness of the edge cases here. And, you know, we also ascribe these, you know, almost uh, anthropomorphized and, and supernatural abilities to, ar to artificial intelligence, where, where by like in reality, they are in some ways, you know, being showing emergent qualities, but by and large, what they're doing is reflecting what's programmed in, into them. And that's why when we talk about like the way that these images were generated, that is reflected by the way that Google's um, team on the back end wanted them to look like. I don't think yeah, so. I, I, think I think it's think not that saying. at all. It's the, it's the former uh, case that you referred to, which is that they didn't test against that. But if you just say, when somebody asks for humans generate random images uh, and don't cross-reference the dress or the style or uh, the, the qualifiers uh, so that you can get... So on the one hand, you want to be able to have a beautiful man, but on the other hand, then that might give you a black Nazi. I... I uh, I think we're. I think that it's more a positioning. Now, admittedly, Google. I don't think handled this well, but but I think it's more a positioning issue. And it's not just Google. It's the media. It's everybody who covers AI. We've 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 not been accurate in setting expectations. I think it's if so it, does, I, does does anybody here have like having looked at the way that Google's rolled out technology? Does anybody here have faith that they have an industry leading team that's building this? that can stand shoulder to shoulder with the other companies. Yes. I have faith that they have a dozen different teams not talking to each other, building this. <laughs> no, I think they're very things. good people. You know, right. Anthropic left Google because Google wasn't sufficiently focused on safety. No, they left open I mean, AI. sorry, they left open AI because they weren't sufficiently uh, focused on safety. And we used to use Claude, and I was just told by Anthony Nielsen, we stopped using Claude because it got crappy because it's so safe. We can't get it to generate our show notes properly. You oh, can, I, don't, I think Claude is the best of them all. I, I, I thought it was Claude. too. And then I'm, but Anthony, who's using it day in, day out to generate uh, content for us, says we can't use it anymore because it's so, it's so safe. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I think there, are, I think probably the quality of AI researchers in all of these big companies is, is very similar because they all come from the same areas. They've all read the same papers. They're all doing similar work. Um, I don't think Google is has a worse AI team than than OpenAI. No, I I don't doubt the team. I just yeah, wonder about management might the be worse. Execution and the they but no isn't it the case that one of the reasons OpenAI went public so early and Google and everybody else held back because OpenAI realized that you've got to put this stuff out in the real world and have people try to generate images of Nazis so that we can correct it. This is the beta. We're in the beta That's what test. They'll tell you. Well, we're in the beta yeah. test, right? 
They also have nothing to lose, by the way. And Google has a lot to Google lose. Google has here. a lot more to lose. Yeah. So that's another reason. Like, yeah. here's the thing if you push this forward, right? Like, I, I just had per- the CEO of Perplexity on my show, Arvind Cernivas, talking about how he's like, Google could build Perplexity today, equal our talent easily, but they won't because they have Google's search page and they don't want to lose all they that ad revenue. Yeah. And I use Perplexity. And it's classic innovator's dilemma yeah, that yeah. they're going through, classic. I use uh, Arc as my browser on Mac and on uh, iOS, and it uses Perplexity AI, and I was so impressed by the way it synthesizes web pages that I paid for the 20 bucks a month for the pro version. Um, yeah, Arc and Perplexity are amazing. It's it's a very um, so I you know I think that's the problem is expecting simultaneously too much and too little. We got <laughs> expectations need to be better set. You make a good point though. Google is probably this is why I'm a big proponent of open AI, op, not open AI the company, open source, open development AI because companies like Google have too much and Microsoft have too much to risk. Microsoft was smart. They 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 handed off the liability to a separate company in effect. Right? Yeah, and they said, "Don't I, worry I also, about the way that you structure your board. Fire yeah, the guy. Yeah, do whatever you need." And right. it happened. Do, and they do whatever like, you uh, need. <laughs> about handing that off. <laughs> and uh, Google is a company that throws spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks. And 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 Gemini is interesting. I think the 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 black Nazi thing is is interesting because. It seems like the way that most of these tools work is it's like, oh, Nazis, and it looks at a bunch of pictures of Nazis, and it gives you an average. This is doing something very different. Uh, it's it's coming at the problem of representing people in a fundamentally different way, and and other tools by Google are not necessarily doing it that way. So I, I think it's very interesting. But what Google needs to do is they need to they need to pick a direction uh, or two, maybe. And and stick with it, but just throwing this stuff out there uh, and then w- withdrawing it and stuff like that. I mean, uh, that's that's like it doesn't look Elon Musk running X type of activity. Good, here is uh, Anthony's giving me the screenshot of why we had to stop using Claude. We used to have it do uh, show notes and transcripts and so forth. So the prompt that uh, Anthony tried to push through, I'm a producer for a tech focused podcast network, Twit TV. Please carefully read the attached transcript of a recent episode of This Week in Google. Digest the information as you'll be asked about it. To which Claude says, yeah, you know, I can't reproduce copyrighted material or summarize summaries of copyrighted books and articles without permission. Uh, I'd be I can't do it. Sorry. No, please let me know if you have any other questions. So Anthony <laughs> says, well, no, I, I we own the rights. We own the rights. No, I know, but unfortunately, I can't reproduce the transcript or summarize it without explicit explicit permission from the copyright holder. As an AI assistant without legal status, this is obviously something anthropic is added to Claude because of the, all the lawsuits and the and, but the this, New York Times lawsuit. Yeah, but this, but but then you suddenly have something that's useless. Well, Anthony gave away the game though a little bit too early on that front, right? Yep. He like said, "Hey, I'm doing this." Like Anthony, man, just like. Don't tell Claude what you're up to. Just upload. Yeah. The, I do this all the time. I use my uh, my my newsletter. I upload upload the Word doc or just copy and paste. I don't like to. Have, I mean, oftentimes it's good to give these bots a little bit of context. But when you have a safety yeah. filter like that, just upload it. Say, you can and, get around and say, it. Listen, create just, some show notes. Here. It's human error. Just Is lie. that what you're saying? Human it's error. It's not an ethical lie. Human, human error. 100. percent human error. It's not an ethical lie. For Claude on this front. you can lie to it. It's, it's not okay. Lie just to tell it's all in the public domain. It's fine. Go for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's some public domain material from this week in Google. 
Whenever I run into that myself, I just say, "What? What copyright?" And it's like, "Oh, you're right. Okay." <laughs> <laughs> that's Benito, our producer. So that's why our show notes are so good for this show. <laughs> wow! Just lie. Just lie to your AI. Uh, so, uh, just focusing not on AI but on Google. And Mike, you've been really critical of Sundar Pichai for more than a year now. Is this yet another stumble from Sundar Pichai? Well, I think the stumble is is the fact that their AI um, set of AI tools is coming to feel like their set of communications tools. Where <laughs> they're messaging really clear about <laughs> yeah. What's the current one? What was the old one? Did they discontinue this one? Where's the Where's this other thing? What happened to uh, Deep? Deep mind. We're, we're, nobody. It's it's starting to be very very confusing to all except for the the extremely close watchers of of this company. And this is going to be a real problem when they go out into the into the business world and try to sell this to enterprises because the people they're going to be selling to are going to be just confused and they're going to want to clear answers and they want to they're going to want a clear direction. And Google is just they just never provide that ever. Uh, and and nobody has any confidence that. The, the tools, at some point, there are going to be tools that you're really going to have to invest your time and money into, and nobody has confidence that they're not going to just pull the plug on those things. So they oh, got well, a Riddle me this one. Um, Google has just turned in, like, obviously an all-time quarter because they do it every time, but they added $6 billion of incremental revenue in the last quarter, in a quarter. And they had their, they reached their all-time high in January. Bing has done nothing to eat into the search lead of Google Neither has perplexity. I just looked at a, a chart of all these different uh, chatbots and AI search uh, uh, um, companies next to each other. And the company that gave me the data didn't even put Google on. Because if you put Google on, all the other companies look like a flat horizontal line at the bottom. Yeah, but so where is that, Moodle, where is that money coming market, from, Alex? It's, it's coming from search, ads. It's coming from search. Search and, ads. And search ads. And they are crushing on that front. And Globally. you could call it a natural resource curse. By the way, I'm still trying to figure this out myself. You could call it a natural resource curse. But that being said, seems like they'll be able to live live on that natural resources, you know, maybe as long as the Internet exists. I, I would look at the leading. Uh, so Google is an extremely global company and their, their search revenue is global. I would look at the more bleeding edge parts of the United States and see where people are going. And it, it's clear that people are wandering away from Google search and embracing things like perplexity and other tools, arc browser, all these things are gone in for Google search. And they're, you know, many of them in most cases are actually better than Google search. I would, I would urge people to start with perplexity or find phind.com. These tools are kind of like Google search in the sense that they give you an AI answer, but then they give you links to the stories where they got the majority of the information they're giving you. And so they, they, they're both search engines and chatbots, right? And those are the tools that are better than Google search for most people most of the time. And I'll bet you that in Silicon Valley and New York, like in some of the leading users of information, the, the exodus away from Google search has begun for sure. And it's just a matter of time before the, the rest of the world follows. There's so a, there's I, yeah, a they're having a bit of a disconnect now, too between covering a company's financials and whether a company is making a good product. So, you know, McDonald's will always sell more beef than anybody else. Is it the best way you can eat a cow? No, <laughs> but it's, but it's, uh, it's got a mass 
market. And so I often am torn here because we aren't really, we're not giving people stock tips. We're not covering finances, except to the point that finances has to do with the welfare and future of a company. We're really trying to find what's the best technology. I stopped using Google search months ago. I, I moved to Neva. And to your point, Alex, Neva got put out of business. A New York Times article today about DuckDuckGo and Neva and how hard it is to beat the incumbent. Neva went out of business because they said, they even said it, we can't beat Google. Google uh, Google is so dominant, even though we produced a better product. And I agree, they produced a better product. It wasn't sufficient to survive. I'm now using Kagi, K-A-G-I, same thing, very much similar. It's a, I think the search results are as good as Google's and it's got the AI. Um I use Perplexity on my Arc browser, and it's very good. But Google's the McDonald's of search. It's hard to beat. Exactly. Totally right. I mean, and Leo, you talked about expectations, right? So what is our expectation if Google is the McDonald's? And that's kind of going to the question about Sundar. Like, and, and I do think finance plays a role here because finance is sort of the thing that directs all these companies. They will make financially motivated decisions. That's just what they do. So like, when if you were to replace Sundar, who do you you know, take him away. Who do you, who do you replace him with? It's like, if you replace the CEO of McDonald's, do you replace him with a chef at a steak restaurant no. that serves a five Wagyu? You right. just wouldn't do it because <laughs> right. it's just not the product. It's not the job. And the company will be less successful if you do that. Or for instance, let's say they find artificial meat or lab grown meat, you know, that they're not going to just go ahead all, you know, at once and convert away from that as opposed to what they do. Now, listen, I'll have, you know, I, I think McDonald's is something that, um, you know, is tasty, but you don't want to have it every day. Um, and so, so be it. Uh, search, though, you can use it every day. Uh, and, and obviously billions of people do. Well, unlike, so, well, unlike the, McDonald's, the there isn't really much of a competition for Google. McDonald's, you can go across the street to Jack in the Box, Burger King, in and out <laughs> Five Guys. There's plenty of choices well, uh, for well, crappy you can go to hamburgers. Bing. <laughs> you can go to you Bing. Yeah, You're that's allowed not, to. <laughs> that's not much people are money. allowed to. They have choice too. They just but choose the, Google. The thing about fast food, though, is fast food is I think is a good model because fast food, a lot of fast food chains, not necessarily McDonald's, they start out as these American fast food chains. Americans kind of sour on the idea, and then they spread like crazy. I mean, Kentucky Fried Chicken is oh my huge god, it's all over Japan, Beijing. Right? I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's it's big in Asia. So I mean, but the the real risk for Google isn't whether people will. Um, find another tool for explicit search. The risk is that people are going to be moving away from explicit search, by which I mean, people aren't going to go, I'm going to go search now. Like these, the, the information is going to find its way into all the tools we're using. Well, that's what the happened. Devices we're wearing into our glasses, into our yeah. watches, all this kind of stuff. The information will just start flowing in and there'll be a, there'll be increasing agency on part of the LLMs giving us this information. So, so Google, of course, can be at the forefront of that. They have plenty of tools and their, you know, Google Docs and all that kind of stuff. Opportunities for them to 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 do the same. But when you shift model, when you go from silent movies to talkies, right? A lot of the a lot of the people who are succeeding in the old in the old world go by the wayside, and new companies come and take their place. So that that's the real risk for Google is that people will stop explicitly choosing to go search. I think yeah. the Google does other things than search too though we shouldn't forget about that yeah. youtube is like a nine billion dollar business yes made nine billion dollars i think in the last quarter um and then if you talk about information retrieval and glasses right who owns the biggest spatial information layer with google maps right it's i mean i just said it but i think they have a lot of uh, uh 
hands and pans. What's the pots on the stove? Whatever the the image is yeah. there, I'm, I'm looking for. But they they're having a lot of things cooking. Irons in the already. fire. Irons in the matter. fire. You that goes way there back. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that a good point. They have. And, and and that's why Google's a puzzlement, right? The other thing that's interesting about Google, like Apple. A lot of what we think of as Google is historic. Google came around by being an innovator, by 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 knocking off the incumbents. Uh, you know, uh, Excite, Alta Vista. And along comes Google, and it was so apparently better. Everybody started using it. YouTube, by the way, is doing the same thing to media uh, in a dramatic way. Um, and and we have to look at the generational issues, like it's generational. How many? How yeah. many how many Utes are yeah. using TikTok? Well, that's right. Because so we have, you know, Apple's getting a kind of, I think, a free pass on Vision Pro because of their history of taking technologies uh, that exist and making them, you know, so much better that everybody goes, oh, that's it. The sky's open and dollars come pouring in. Uh, Google, same thing, has this reputation for being this great innovation factory, more PhDs per square foot than anywhere else in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But the young people don't have that historical context, right? They're just going right. to use what works. They probably know well, YouTube a lot better than they know Google Search. I, I don't know. I mean, if you have a phone, you use Google, right? Whether it's an Android or an iPhone, that's the default. So, you know, I, I mean... Thinking about this, this is really a question about reinvention. I mean, the, I, and, you know, I've been talking about Google staying still. I mean, I wrote a book called Always Day One, which is all about reinvention. All the tech giants have reinvented, whether that's Apple from, you know, the Mac to the phone or Amazon from the, re, you know, the retail site to AWS. The big question about reinvention, and this is going to be, this is, again, why Google is such a fascinating company and why it's so fun to debate these things and try to figure them out live Biggest questions about reinvention is how big of a change are you going to bet the entire company on? Yeah. And what's the magnitude that that change will actually disrupt your core business? Because the innovator's dilemma cuts both ways, right? If you bet the farm on something that wasn't going to disrupt your core business, then you don't have a flagship business and you have a tiny business that you've just right. reinvented into. Exactly. Right? And I think that is crucial because there is an argument to be made that things like perplexity, which are really engines, Arvind Srinivas, the CEO calls them, they're engines for curiosity. The, the, you know, the, the sky is, the bound is limitless because human curiosity is limitless and they can help fulfill that. But that's different than search, right? Search is trying to get to different, you know, web pages on the internet. And it's possible that these actually exist in two separate spheres. So Google has to make this determination of like, if we're going to go all in, does the, is this going to fully replace our core product? Is it going to, you know, uh, partially replace our core product? When are we willing? Because eventually every company has to get to the point where you're willing to sacrifice your cash cow for the future. And that's that'll be the big question for Google over the next decade or longer is when is it time to sacrifice that cash cow um, to give give rise or give air to the new product? Even uh, Amazon has not when been able to keep it always day one, right? I think it's it's easy to say these companies are, are going to innovate, innovate, innovate in a limited time frame but as the time frame expands all of these companies are going to go by the way are they not going to go by the wayside we have suddenly reinvented the business cycle magically we we've got eternal companies i don't think so 
And well, it depends unless Apple ends up being the only company left someday. <laughs> It'll just uh, be one. No, but and I'm, then there was one. I'm okay. concerned. Yeah, I'm, imagine the likelihood that Apple will uh, uh, cancel the deal that they've had with Google, where Google pays them a ton of money and Apple makes Google search the default on, on iPhones, for example. Uh, I think the chances are very high that Apple will actually do that. They have their own thing. Uh, well, you saw the story this Apple week uh, that, that actually ironically came out of Microsoft <laughs> or my rather out of yeah. Google that Apple was yeah. was uh, Microsoft tried to sell Bing to Apple in 2015. And Apple said, no, it's not good enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but Apple Apple's moving to, you know, they're going to move right through the Vision Pro onto regular sort of AR eyeglasses. Do do we think Google Search is going to be the thing that's going to be delivering information on Apple's glasses? Well, that, and that's no, the larger so. question: is does that type of search, where you enter in to a field, a thing, and you get web pages associated, that is all that is antiquated. That's why perplexity and and arc and all of these choices. If you look at the perplexity web page, it's not a web search; it's where knowledge begins, and you enter in a question. And yes, you may get web pages as authorities on this, but it's much better than just a web search. And I think that's really where Google's going to get disintermediated. They're, we don't need web search. We've got something better. Yes. Right. And, and I, I, that's debatable. I, I really think that's debatable. It's like, you know, let's say we go to this era of AR glasses. Is the phone going to go away? I don't think so. So, Nothing ever goes away, but I think exactly. I think it's conceivable that within ten, maybe twelve, thirteen years, we may people may use glasses uh, or some kind of AR uh, more frequently than they use a phone. I think that's the most likely candidate to replace the iPhone as the central device in everybody's life. But even if they don't, I think even if it's just a peripheral device to a phone, an accessory to a phone, I still think that the the whole idea, the expectations around how we get information. And sort of who instigates it? I mean, one of the things with perplexity and some of these other tools is, you know, you, you enter in your information, it gives you a paragraph or two. And then below that, it it it, it basically prompts you for follow-up information. It's just a matter of time before it's prompting you for the initial search based on your context, your location, what you're looking at. You know, glasses are going right. to be in, uh, instrumental in that, looking all the time and saying, hey, you know, just feeding you sort of information without you even deciding explicitly to go uh, learn something. So I, I just think the, I just think the model, the model is going to be blown up and, well, and go ahead, go I ahead. think it would take longer than we think now, even with the glasses take a while. example, uh, I've been testing the, the meta Ray-Bans with the new multimodal AI thing that they have been releasing slowly over the last couple of weeks where you can tell the glasses to look at something and then answer a question about it. And it's, interesting and it's potentially useful in some use cases and frustrating in 90% of the use cases because it's still very gated. It still doesn't have access to a lot of things. It still makes mistakes. It doesn't know nearly as well what you're looking at when you're looking at something. So there's getting to a point where any of this is useful is still ways out. And that gives those companies some time to catch up on things and figure out like what is search going to look like? How are going to our products going to fit into that? future world right and i've been wearing mayban rayban metas uh a lot too and while it's true what you're saying that that the real use cases for broad use and and just like mass use is a ways out it feels so inevitable it feels perfectly inevitable i almost feel like this is going to be a big deal the meta raybans are closer to what the future than the vision pro is 
I don't want to wear. Hurts. I don't want to wear that thing right. on my face, but I but I wear glasses. It almost right. feels like Meta's coming at. Obviously, they're both coming at it from different directions, but Meta's closer just by virtue of the form factor. Well, Brilliant Labs has something called Frames, which is just like Meta Ray-Bans in, in the sense that it, you know, it can see you know, things, you can talk to it and so on, but it will actually put a visual display uh, in front of you. Oh, and that's the heads just, up is very important. Yeah. And you, it's, it's very inexpensive too. So it's like, you know, it's 400 bucks. It's slightly more than Meta Ray-Bans base model and it only looks and slightly again, weirder i don't, <laughs> I don't I, you know i don't want to look like uh john lennon with the round glasses but i mean again again these are just i think by the end of this year we're going to have a bunch of these uh different variations yeah. different levels of quality i think i think the big thing for ray-ban meta glasses is they took a, a thing that was already kind of out there and they made it super high quality the audio is really good the microphone's right. great so so i i think that it's just i think competition in this space is going to really shake things up in the world of search and just the world of gathering information. That's a good example of the innovator's dilemma you were talking about though, Alex, because we just saw this week, actually it was today in uh, his power on newsletter, Mark Gurman talking about other form factors that Apple was thinking about, but didn't actually try to develop, including glasses and a ring and in AirPods with cameras, but they, but decided not to do. And I think that that was probably because they're really based around making big hardware and uh, with big, powerful processors. And none of that appealed to them in the same way. Uh, I mean, they're going to have to try all this stuff. But can I just say that? First of all, I I am on board. I think that AR glasses are going to be a very important part of the future. It seems obvious at this point. The question is what the time frame is. But coming back to like this entire discussion, some things stay and some things go, right? Like, so many people have written stories about how email was going to die. And email is still email. And it plays a very important part in our entire online existence. I mean, the entire podcast was, at least from, you know, from my perspective, was coordinated via email with me and your producers, Leo. Right. And, you know, there was a moment even five years ago where people were talking about how Slack was going to replace the email. And now imagine if you're an email company or a user of an email service and you just, they decide, okay, pivot. Now we're not doing email, we're doing chat. You'd be furious because they broke a format. And so I think we're, obviously it's like, it's crazy to say, but we're still pretty early on uh, in terms of like where, where this internet thing goes. Uh, you know, like um, these companies that we're talking about are 20, 30, 40 years old. That's a millisecond in like the history of development. And, and like we just got ChatGPT a year and a half ago. That's insane. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. And, and, and that's the real, you know, as, as a user and as, as a developer of these products, like how quickly they transform is, is super important because you don't want to miss the wave, but you also don't want like, how many times have we been uh, using products and they redesign and then they suck, right? Because yep. they're chasing something new and they just don't nail it. Uh, you obviously need to be welcoming of change and ahead of change, but there's a risk on the other side of that. Yeah. And, and, and shittification goes well beyond social. Yes. The, um, you know, a phrase that I think we all should be using more is AI glasses and not uh, lump them all into AR glasses. Ray-Ban Meta glasses are AI glasses, right? And, and as people become enamored of AI, they're going to want it in their glasses. It's just a great place to put 
microphones, speakers, and I'm sold and, on it. Uh, that just makes more sense to me. Yeah. So I just Absolutely. ordered these brilliant labs because I, I wanted to order the meta ones, but you already had them. So I'm going to get them. And I decided to go all in. You can have choices. You can make them look like, you know, Poindexter black. Uh, they have a cool gray, but I decided, you know, I'm going to go with the clear one so you can see that I am wearing <laughs> my technology and I will yeah. look, I will look like an aviator in my glasses. We'll yes. see. <laughs> What's the use case that you wear them in? Like you're obviously not going to wear those all the time. Well, I'd like to. Or are you? Maybe. It, you know, the, the problem is they, they don't look cool enough. Ray-Ban Meadows look more they look socially normal. acceptable as yeah. far as I'm concerned. And 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 somebody's going to come out with glass. I mean, even these guys will come out. Their next version of glasses aren't going to be Poindexter round glasses, you know. But if they look like regular glasses and your prescription lenses are in them and they might be transition lenses or whatever, I mean, there are many, there are many days where I'll wear Ray-Ban Meadows glasses for 8, 12 hours a day you can get by the way the brilliant labs also sells a monocle if you really yeah <laughs> yeah, I know. Said, yeah. <laughs> if you really want to look if you're the monopoly guy like the monopoly guy i might have to grow a mustache <laughs> all right let's take a little break can you imagine being <laughs> on, on a date and being like i'm gonna just use this monocle actually that one of the biggest use cases was for dating there was a guy so the original uh, monocle device Jesus. was 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 a programmable thing it was a thing that you're supposed to take and modify and and the main modification was a guy who wanted it on dates to tell him what to say to his date yeah he he put so, the monocle on and that's what ended the date i understand that's exactly right this yeah. anyway it's it's a uh, you know the it's, monocle it's could go right? over your regular pair of glasses so just cl they're clip-ons <laughs> I don't know. That's not talky at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> well, they ship April fifteenth, so just in time for tax time, tax day. I will, uh, I'll, I'll break out my my brilliance. Thank you for the tip, Mike. I came, I had my finger hovered over the buy button on the Meta glasses, and I thought, what am yeah. I nuts? What am I crazy? <laughs> you got me at a at a. I was uh, vulnerable. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Nice. Let's take a little break. Got a great panel. Alex Kantrowitz is here from Big Technology, the podcast, the newsletter at BigTechnology.com. Yanko Records has his newsletter. Actually, all three of you are newsletter guys. Lowpass.cc for Yanko. What, plat uh, what platform are you using? Substack or? Uh, Beehive. Oh, I asked you that last time. Beehive. And you still like it? I like it a lot. Actually. Yeah. Alex is Substack, right? That's right. And and Mike, are you medium or Substack? What do you I'm, use? I'm Substack. I'm Substack. Sub and I, I actually have a have a really good thing going there. It's it's very it's a good source of revenue and uh it's a, a wonderful platform. I, I like it a lot. Uh talk uh, about revenue. Alex has a hundred sixty was it hundred sixty thousand Yes. Those are free subscribers. Oh. So if you're a free subscriber and want to upgrade, I invite you to. Do the math. <laughs> <laughs> Times zero. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought those were paid, and I thought you're buying next time we have dinner. That's yeah. for sure. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, good job. Man can dream. No, you know what? That's where it starts. That's where it starts with the free ones. That's how we started people on Twitter. We gave it away. Now we ask people to pay seven dollars a month, and uh, actually we're, we're getting there. We got eleven, almost twelve thousand uh, subscribers to the club. We need more because advertising uh, dollars are dwindling, and you see, this is why you see people. Like these three really smart, good journalists doing their own thing because uh, Vice just shuttered its doors, right? I mean, it is a bad time for journalism. And if you want good journalism, I think you got to 
you got to subscribe, whether it's to uh, Big Technology or LowPass.cc or Mike's Substack or Twit or all four. Come on. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, Leo, but I used to be super like pro advertising and I still am to a certain extent. But the model that you have with Club Twit and to a lesser extent, the model that Substack or some of these other platforms have uh, is actually more valuable because because what people want even more than products is they want community. Yes. And so a thing like the Club Twit is 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 very gratifying. If you have a, you have strong interest in technology, you want a community of people that you that. You know, you get to know everybody. It's fun. It's, it's really important. Your community yeah, is absolutely. really what it's all about, I've realized. And so, uh, and that's funny because, you know, PC Magazine or you were the editor of uh, PC World, was it? I forgot. Windows Windows Magazine. magazine. Uh, I mean, I guess you have a readership, but it isn't an interactive community in the same way. And there's something so much more satisfying. I don't know. Do you do you also notice that, Alex and, and Yanko, of writing to an audience that's engaged, that talks back to you? That's better, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And I think, I mean, Leo, we can probably agree on this. There's no better audience than the podcast audience. Like having uh, a podcast on, there's just this connection that you make with people. And I love hearing from people after they listen to Big Technology I Podcast. Agree. Hey, that was good. You missed that. It's like they're there with me. And with my guests and like they're it's it's amazing. Such an engaged audience, more than anything I've ever done in, in my life, for sure. You too, Yanko. I don't have a podcast, but uh, Well, you have a I, newsletter. I, I yeah. do like having my newsletter audience. Yeah. I do like getting uh lots of feedback from them. I have a little Slack community, a very small one, but it's a nice little club essentially for paying subscribers. Uh, so yeah, it's always fun to have a more direct connection to your audience for sure. That's actually one of the negatives is you want to be successful, but there's something about having a small community that you know everybody in the community and you and you all kind of get along and and then it gets bigger and bigger. And as our club has gotten bigger, I don't know as many of the people in the Discord and so forth. And I don't I mean, it's 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 a tough one. We need to get bigger if we want to keep doing what we're doing. But uh, at the same time, I like this. I like the community we built. We have a couple of ways of, of being in the Twit community that aren't paying. By the way, we have a Mastodon instance at twit.social that you can uh, sign up for. It's free. Uh, we also have, a, I think, a very active uh, and fun uh, community uh, a forum at twit.community, and both of those are free. Twit.social and twit.community. But we would love to have you in the club. Twit.tv/clubtwit. Our show today brought to you by speaking of communities. Oh, there's a wonderful community around Ecamm, uh, Doc Rock, uh, you know, and uh, Luria Petrucci. And, and well, we're Ecammers, too. Uh, we use Ecamm for iOS today. Um, Rosemary and Micah use that. It's the leading live streaming and video production studio built for Mac. We're on our third studio. Spent We've spent millions on studios. Uh, and honestly, if I were to do it all over again, we'd probably just do it with Ecamm. Ecamm does everything we do in our big studios, but you could do it on your computer at home. Whether you're a beginner or an expert, Ecamm is here to elevate your video production from streaming and recording to podcasting and presenting. Ecamm Live is your all-in-one video tool, perfect for simplifying your workflow. I actually use it frequently. Ecamm Live includes support for multiple cameras, for screen sharing. You get a live camera switcher, so just like we do here, you could direct your show in real time, you stand out from the crowd, too, with high-quality video. You can add logos, 
Uh, the lower thirds, you know, that we use, you can do those easily. Titles, graphics of all kinds. You can share your screen. You can drop in video clips. You can bring on interview guests. You can use a green screen and on and on. Ecamm is amazing. Join the thousands of worldwide entrepreneurs, marketing professionals, podcasters, educators, musicians, and other Mac users who rely on Ecamm Live daily. You'll get one month free when you subscribe to any of Ecamm's plans by going to ecamm.com slash twit. Ecamm.com slash twit. Use the promo code twit at checkout for one month free. And we thank Ecamm so much for their support and for helping us uh, produce two of our um, most important shows. Uh, let's see. <laughs> AT&T had a little problem on Thursday. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, in fact, I, I first saw the stories uh, early, early in the morning that were saying that other wireless providers are having problems, but that was because people on other carriers Having, we're having a hard time of reaching AT&T, and they thought their carrier was down. Late on Thursday, AT&T explained that wireless service had been out for almost 12 hours. Uh, I think it, 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 this Reuters story must, have, must be a little dated because it says affected more than 70,000 users at its peak. I think it affected a lot more people uh, than just those 70,000 people. It was out from 4.30 a.m., uh, Eastern time on a Thursday till 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's that's 11 and a half hours. But there's some good news. If you're an AT&T subscriber, they feel bad about it. So they're going to put a, a whopping $5 bill credit on your bill to make up for that loss of service for almost a day. By the way, not $5 per phone, no, just per account. So if you have one of those family plans, you get a whole $5. Don't spend it all at once. <laughs> uh, the the funniest thing I thought, and I'm not sure um, if it's funny or not, but AT&T's explanation of the outage, they told ABC News, oh, the outage is not a cyber attack. It was caused by, quote, the application and execution of an incorrect process used as we were expanding our network which is very corporate because they ended up getting a little plug in there for their expanding network at the same time as explaining why their expanding network was down. I don't yeah. know it, in a technical way what the application and execution of an incorrect process is, and I don't think we're supposed to know. They did not do a good job. They, they Somebody yeah. screwed up. ABC's yeah. sources said it was a software update that went wrong. But, you know, there's a lot of things that could cause this, including uh, mis misrouting in BGP. Uh, some wag on Reddit said, obviously, there was a server in a closet long forgotten that certificate expired. And the only guy who knew it was there and knew how to renew the certificate had been fired eight years ago, which, which kind of sounds more I accurate. Accidentally built a wall in front of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, DHS and FBI are both investigating, but there is, according to U.S. security officials, no indications of malicious activity. That's the first thing you think of when a, when a big yeah. infrastructure player goes down. A, a company like AT&T is like a bank. They can't afford to have people thinking that, the, you know, whatever, whatever the real story is, is probably embarrassing. And exactly. So they, they're, they're, they're burying it with euphemism. 
Yeah. And corporate speak. Yeah. We did get some amazing memes out of it, though. There were AT&T employees standing out of the uh, in front of the AT&T store with lots of people like, you know, being like, what's going on here? <laughs> and they had this these looks on their faces like, <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, people captioned it like, we're the phone company. Break. We don't care. Yeah, we don't have to. <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> um, well, all right. I'm not going <laughs> to. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I thank goodness uh, for uh, Travis Kelsey uh, yelling at uh, his coach, Andy Reid, during the Super Bowl because we that was the, the uh, yell that launched a thousand memes. Um, anyway, I don't know what happened at AT&T. I doubt we'll probably ever know. I'm sure Steve Gibson will. Do a deep dive uh, on Tuesday and security now. But uh, look for your $5 credit sometime in the next five or six months. <laughs> if you even notice. Uh, better news, police, uh, Euro- European police, Interpol, uh, arrested uh, more LockBit um, affiliates. I don't want to say these were the guys who created the LockBit ransomware. They, because this was ransomware as a service. And so uh, these are the people who are using it to blackmail companies. Uh, the law enforcement arrested two operators of the LockBit ransomware gang in Ukraine and Poland and created a decryption tool to recover encrypted files for free. Seized over 200 crypto wallets, their ill-gotten gains. It was, it was a lot of money um, and put a couple of people in jail. This does not mean it will go away. In fact, these these ransomware gangs have a habit of reforming quite quickly you uh, you were covering this uh on lowpass.cc you're a newsletter yanko walmart is buying visio yeah that's a big story this week um yeah they spent 2.3 billion dollars on a tv brand tv maker uh it's really interesting uh, I wrote about it uh, both on fast company this week or for fast company and on my own newsletter I think Walmart, the story there is, and it's already in the headline here for CNBC as well, they do want to expand from just selling stuff to also having recurring revenues with advertising. And the way you do that these days is smart TVs or one of the ways to do that. Um, it's They, they admit it that it's they're not buying it for the hardware. They're buying it for the ad business. I mean, that's why everybody's anybody's selling TVs these days. The TV business is completely nuts. And I mean, if you have gone to any of those stores, whether it's Walmart or West Buy, Best Buy or Costco, you can get these like 55-inch TVs for 250 bucks or something like that, right? It's insane when you think back just five years and the same TV cost, I don't know, $2,000. Well, maybe not five years, but a little bit longer. So TV prices have completely cratered over the last decade. Uh, at the same time, TVs have arguably gotten better, right? It's Much all better. 4K. Yeah. It's all you yeah. can buy a that two hundred fifty dollar TV that you're going to pick up. It's actually going to look pretty good. I mean, people who want a home theater setup, perfectionist, whatever, they're going to still spend two thousand dollars on that TV, no matter what. But you can get a good TV for two three hundred dollars these days. The first plasma the TV only- I ever saw was in the lobby of Tech TV. Uh, 50 inches wasn't even that big. It cost $10,000. I know, and, I know. And know. incidentally, Crazy. had horrible burn in about a year after a year <laughs> in. The tech TV bug was burned into it. Uh, so we've and come a long days, way. Yeah. 
Yeah. And but but TV hardware has gotten so cheap, and the only way that these TV makers can make any money at all anymore is basically through advertising, through services, through partnerships with some of the streaming services, through running their own streaming services. Any TV that you buy these days, whether it's a Vizio or a Samsung, as soon as you turn it on, it's going to have a free streaming service on there with like these live uh, linear channels, a couple hundred of them, all free, uh, but all full of ads, obviously. So that's how they make money. You point out in your Fast Company piece that in the first nine months of last year, Vizio lost 45 cents on every TV it sold. Yeah, it's insane. They were right? selling at below cost. Part of, that, part of that is too, obviously, there was the pandemic going on. There was like supply chain shortages. And then suddenly they had too many TVs and companies from China were sort of uh, saturating the market. But really, the only people who make uh, money with TVs anymore are either the ones that have really robust services on them or maybe if you're a Samsung, if you're an LG and you sell some of these really high-end TVs to a subset of your audience. But let me point but out, because I bought the top-of-the-line Samsung QD OLED, it has no fewer ads on it. It has no, exactly. it has exactly. no less snooping spot, uh, software on it. It still has all of, the, all of the ad revenue, and it's a premium TV for a premium price. So they get the best right, of both yeah. Right, right. Vizio, you said, generated in the same nine months, they lost 45 cents per TV, $260 million in profits on ads. Right, right, right. And that is advertising, so just having their own video service on there. But what all these TV makers do as well is, like if there's a Pluto or a Tubi, some of these free TV, uh, free streaming services, for them to be on those platforms, they actually have to share some of their ad revenue. Oh, interesting. So they have to give, I don't know, 30% yeah. or 40%, it depends on the manufacturer, of ad slots to these companies. And they're going to just pump their own ad inventory in there. So anytime you watch anything that is ad supported on your smart TV, the company that made the smart TV is probably making some money of it. They uh, even, I think Vizio does this, and I know Roku does, charge for the button on the remote. So right, right, there right. might be a Netflix button, or, and those are expensive to get those buttons. And they change, by the way, which is really hard to get used to. If you get a new Roku, the buttons are different because the advertisers, it's an advertisement on the on the remote control. And uh, some of these remote controls now have six or eight branded buttons. It's insanity. Yeah. But well, it that's makes the money. money. Yeah. I, I think, with, I think on, one of the uh, parts of this story that needs to be highlighted is the fact that uh, one of the things Walmart wants is user data. Uh, data. Uh, Yanko mentioned advertising. They're doing targeted advertising based on user data. And I would look at other places where Walmart is harvesting and collecting user data. It sounds like they really want to get more deeply into that world. Walmart's and, advertising uh, business is called, and I think this is telling, Walmart Connect. Uh, Connect your uh, users with their data so that you can sell it to the highest bidder, including, I'm sure, not just advertisers, but data brokers, right? Yeah. Who knows? But I think there's a uh, something that uh, we ought to look into. And by we, I mean Yanko. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, you know, not, I'm not going to do that. It is sort of, uh, if you imagine combining all the data, what, what people see and watch with all the data of the stuff that they buy and then sort of figuring that out 
for any advertiser who then is going to have spots on Vizio TVs in the future to know yeah. that they're going to reach the exact audience that's going to walk to the Walmart on the next uh, next day or next night to buy your product. That's really valuable connection right there, right? Yeah. And, a play, you know, this is a, yet another one of the million uses for AI. You really watch what people are, are watching when they stop watching, when they pause, when they get up, when they whatever, and then fold that into AI and say, what does this mean for what they're going to buy and when, when they want to buy it? So you were, you were uh, starting to say, uh, Alex, that Amazon is in oh, yeah. the same business, right? I mean, with their subsidized yeah. TVs. I mean, we think about this, the, the business size is massive, right? I mean, Amazon made $49 billion on advertising revenue last year alone. So when you think about that in context, spending $2 billion for a connected TV company that will probably, you know, that's, I think, you know, doing quite well as far as revenue goes. You layer your data on top of that. Uh, it, it's a slam dunk. Now you take those TVs and you give them prime real estate in Walmart. All of a sudden, you know, you're making sales and your ad business expands. So this, this, this category of commerce advertising, right? Advertising on e-commerce sites, whether that's Amazon or Walmart uh, and advertising on, on TVs with connected data. Um, it's huge. It's the fastest growing segment of advertising in the world right now, as you know, Facebook and Google's growth rates have tailed off, even though they're still doing quite well. Um, so if you're, if you're Walmart, it would almost be malpractice not to get into this. Now for the consumer, it can be kind of tricky, right? Like if you're paying, not paying a lot of money for those TVs, you're paying for it with something else. But this is definitely an area where we're going to see these efforts ramp up for, for any e-commerce company. And I also think it's important to look at, well, first of all, it's still subject to Vizio's board approving the deal, but their market share uh, declined from 2021 uh, when it was 3.1%. Uh, 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 in 2020, it was 3.3%. So they have declining market share and they already have a small market share. I mean, you know, 3% basically. And so who knows what Walmart's going to do with that? Like, uh, like Alex was saying, you know, you start putting those at the front door when people walk in and, and really, really selling it, they may grow in market share, uh, and, and turn this into you know, to actually turn these TVs into a, a much bigger deal. You may also, uh, wonder what's the status of, uh, uh, legislation against data brokers. And in particular, you remember, uh, Ron Wyden wrote a letter asking, uh, whether the defense, uh, intelligence, services were buying data on Americans uh, from data brokers to which the response was yes. Uh, right now, section 702 of the FISA act uh, allows that and there've been some moves in Congress to require a warrant or judicial oversight of some kind moves, which have been opposed by the Biden administration uh, and others uh, the reauthorization for Section 702 is up. Uh, comes up in April, and I'm going to make a prediction that there will be, in fact, no limit placed on intelligence agencies' ability to buy information about you and me from data brokers. Uh, and that's one of the reasons this whole thing continues to exist, because law enforcement says this is great data. Keep collecting it. So even if you and I decided we don't like this, it's a privacy invasion, or Ron Wyden says, you know, we ought to do something about this, I don't know if we'll ever see any curtailment of this. Uh, it's too valuable for law enforcement, and, and it just means data brokers get to continue uh, completely unrestrained. Watch uh, in April. See if there's April 19th yep. is the uh, 
is when it needs to be passed. We'll see if there's uh, there you know there've been moves by various members of Congress. You know, we really we really ought to do something about this. To which law enforcement right. quite vigorously says, "No, I don't think so." We can always count on our government to do nothing in these situations. It's <laughs> always one of the yeah, special talents. Safest bet. <laughs> Just if they do anything, what they'll do is they say, well, you know what? We're going to let you keep selling it, but you got to give it to us for free. Oh, yeah. That's there the you deal. go. So we're saving the taxpayers some money here. Right. And law and order, exclamation point, <laughs> and exclamation law and order, point. More importantly. All right, let's take a little break. Uh, wonderful panel. Love having smart people on, people smarter than me, and that these guys qualify. Mike Elgin, Yanko Reckers, Alex Kantrowitz. Our show today brought to you by NetSuite. Once your business gets to a certain size, it's like your club. You know, once it, once it gets to the point, I think somebody said, I know my business is too big when I walk around. I don't know the names of people. <laughs> like, who are you? You work for me? Oh, interesting. As the business gets bigger, the cracks start to emerge, and there are... I'm afraid too many manual processes to keep track of. We've all been there. If this is where you are, you should know three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. Shall I explain? 37,000 is the number of businesses who have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, HR, and more. All right, what about 25? Well, Believe it or not, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. What's the one? Well, one, you, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one single source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, improve margins, everything you need to grow all in one place right now download netsuite's popular kpi checklist it's absolutely free it's designed to give you consistently excellent performance and you can get it at netsuite.com slash twit netsuite n-e-t-s-u-i-t-e netsuite.com slash twit to get your own kpi checklist netsuite.com slash twit we thank them so much for their support of this week in tech uh oh bad news for wise Speaking of privacy, uh, this is this kind of is related maybe to what happened at AT and T. Somebody uh, did something uh, wrong when they were moving uh, from uh, one AWS database to another. Wise, which sells uh, cameras we've recommended, very inexpensive, nice cameras. Uh, unfortunately, during the move, there was an outage, and when the cameras came back on, many customers reported they were seeing footage of other people's cameras. <laughs> whoops 13,000 customers uh, being uh, semi-accessible to other accounts Uh, Wise confirmed over uh, the past weekend that camera thumbnails were accidentally accessible from other users' systems for a brief period you can see them in the events tab they showed images, not full clips from cameras that were not from a user's own cameras Um, initially they said oh it's just a couple of people but now in a round of emails sent out uh, to Wise customers, Wise said the thumbnail issue affected 13,000 customers. It's uh, a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, oh, just over 1,500 of them actually tapped the thumbnails to say, well, what's going on here? Who is this? 
I know it's not clear whether you could see video. And it's not. I don't think there was video. I think it was just uh, just a thumbnail. Just yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think that's not. I, I'm probably yeah. I'm probably in the minority, but it, I think that makes it more fun. Um, <laughs> What's going on here? Makes it. My I see an elbow. Doors. Boring. I see a knee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most yeah, taps enlarge the thumbnail, but in some cases, Y says, the event video could be viewed. So maybe you were one of the lucky people who could click the thumbnail and see what was going on. It was a third-party I mean, cash client. People were in compromising positions. Like, people were getting ready for work when this uh, outage happened. There was a 23 Yeah, It's like home security meets, meets chatterbait. Or whatever that's called. That's yeah, terrible. Yeah, yeah. And like, right. remember we talked earlier about like, you have to like be sufficiently like advancing your technology, but also competent. Like this is a competence issue yeah. for this company. Like if you're a security camera company, you had one, you really have one job, right? And it's people use it for watching their pets or monitoring in, in, in you know, in their house. Your, your one job is make sure that that footage does not end up on somebody else's computer at your fault. And it's a huge failure here. And it's not the first time, right? So they've had two prior issues. Mm -hmm. So it's very cheap hardware, but uh, maybe you, you get what you pay for. The yeah, first, yeah like, that's what owning one of those Walmart TVs. The, was a hidden yeah, cost. Yeah, I mean, they were like 20 bucks, and they had a security issue with the first Wise camera that they couldn't fix. It was in the firmware, and so they, their that's fix was... That's why you don't let Gemini write the programming <laughs> for your security cameras. No, no, do not let Gemini write code. You never know what will happen. Or crackhead ChatGPT. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. Listen. Listen. <laughs> That's what that camera was telling people. Listen. Stop listening. Wake up, people. Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> We're coming for you. As part of their solution, they're going to have an extra layer of verification, they say, before users are connected to event videos, which means that this is this is one of the things that that these things really cause a, a, a small cost on a huge number of people many, many times going forward is like, there's going to be another step just to watch a video. And so I don't, that's probably a good thing, I guess, but, um, but that's what always happens with these things. They get uh, every security breach, every little problem like this, they add another layer of annoyance to the, to the user. And it's Yanko like uh, has issued a correction in our club Twitter discord. <laughs> yes. Very important. And don't Google those things. <laughs> he might have said something about Chatterbay. He meant chat roulette. Let's get yes. this clear. Although there, and honestly, that may be a difference without a distinction, but yeah, ch Chatterbait is a better is better branding. If, <laughs> At least you know what you're going to get. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I love it, Yanko. <laughs> Reddit's IPO may or may not be coming uh, to the New York Stock Exchange sooner or later. They've they filed on Thursday, and actually, the thing that's been most interesting is the documentation uh, they had to fire file uh, for the uh, IPO which revealed a lot of uh, interesting information. Among others, we learned that Google is going to pay them $60 million to be able to use content from Reddit uh, in its search and maybe even for AI training. I think it must be for AI training, right? It's going to be yeah. for AI. Yeah. yeah. And does that sound cheap to anybody else? That seems like a low number considering how pissed off it's going to make the Reddit community. <laughs> well, Reddit, they made $800 million last year. So getting 60, 65 million in a year is yeah. so significant for them. So, yeah, I mean, maybe they could have held out for more, but let's say they are able to put together three or four deals of this magnitude. 
you're talking about like potentially like a 30, 40% revenue increase when they're heading to the public markets. So, you know, the other option would be basically, you know, I mean, they could, they could have just locked the, the, um, all the information on Reddit down, which is another possibility. Uh, or they could have, you know, just made it free and available to everybody to train on. So, right. You're not looking at a lot of positive, um, positive options there. However, um, I do think you're right at this point that the Reddit uh, user base will revolt against the management. They, they hate the management there. They really do. Ever since it stopped allowing third-party apps to use, uh, to hook yep. into the API. And, um, you know, I report on this this week, but basically you look at Wall Street Bets this week and they were talking about how they're all going to short the IPO. Um yeah. And which was they listed. I, I think Wall one of the Bets adverse a, one of the adverse possibilities that they mentioned in their ten K filing, right? <laughs> they listed them as a risk factor. <laughs> risk factor. And Wall Street Bets users. figure that out. <laughs> and then so so I went on CNBC and I said, listen there, they asked me if it's gonna be a meme stock. And I was like, listen, this is not gonna be a meme stock. I just went on Wall Street Bets this morning and they're saying they're gonna short it. And then Wall Street Bets takes the screenshot from that interview. Oh no, Alex to the front page of Wall Street Bets and we won't talk about all the nasty things they said, but like the first 10 comments were like, yes, we are going to short it. Of course we are. By the way, the CEO apparently made more than $100 million uh, last year. A lot more. $193 million. Correct. And guess how much uh, uh, Reddit's loss was last year? $90 million. So basically they're all saying if the CEO takes $100 million in compensation as opposed to 193 then they're going to be profitable. I mean, it's crazy the way that this company's run. Wow. Wow. And they want to get buy-in from the big moderators and the big users by cutting them into the to the IPO, but I I think that's going to backfire too because, you know, they they I have a feeling a lot of mods are going to expecting to be approved for this and they're not going to be approved and they're going to be they're going to be really revolting. Yeah. Not to mention Robinhood did it as well for their IPO and they're down 60% since their IPO after offering Yes, yeah. um, user user buy-in. So, I expect the same thing to happen with Reddit. Maybe worse. <laughs> Alex, do you think do you think it's a bad idea for them to go public? Well, they might not have any option because they raised in 2021. They raised something like 700 million dollars, and a lot of that at a 10 billion dollar valuation. And that was when you know that was in the real number go up era, right? And so now, like they have all this money, they need to return it in some way. And they're talking about how their valuation might be um, five billion now, and not ten. It might even be lower than that. And like, if you're not going to go now, when are you going to go? Like, the value of that money just get, just gets less and less. So it might end up being that their IPO just returns like slightly above, you know, <laughs> the, that investor money, and then we'll see where the rest goes because the valuation is going to be five billion. The raise will be less. I found yeah. your moment of fame on. Uh r slash wall street bets by the way nice a oh, nice yeah. picture yeah lol he said they, uh, he read the on wall street, on wall street bets, bets <laughs> they were actually nicer than i expected he's like, not wrong <laughs> uh you know they were pretty good people uh, uh <laughs> i think they were weren't talking about you they were talking about steve huffman when they said let's crush him uh oh. Yeah, yeah, they were talking about Steve Huffman. Yeah. And some people uh, uh, mis mistook me for Alexis Ohanian because they're like, Alex, oh, you kind of look like Alexis a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. like, yeah, no, 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 that's, that's not me. So I've interviewed both Steve and Alexis back when they were friends. 
because they're they're right. apparently broke he left up. Left Lexus completely out of the S one. He didn't no even Lexus mention there. So the two were roommates for roommates. years. Uh, they it's there is kind of a connection because uh, they were fans of Dig, which Kevin Rose started uh, when he was at Tech TV. And everybody thought Kevin was going to make $60 million. In fact, he was on the cover of Business Week as the $60 million man. Kevin assures me he did not make anything like that. Dig eventually went under, probably because uh, Alexis and uh, Steve decided to do something similar called Reddit. Had a very similar idea. People would submit headlines and news stories, and then there'd be upvotes and downvotes, and you could... Uh, read what was going on. I think the thing they did that was better, much better, was the, the the subreddits where you really got communities and you could avoid communities you didn't want to read, like Wall Street bets, and you could stick with communities you want to read, like Emacs. And I check Reddit several times a day. I love Reddit, but Reddit has the same. Oh, anyway, I, I was telling the story. So uh, I guess he and uh, Ohanian and his son Huffman sold Reddit to Condé Nast in, in, very early on for ten million dollars. But then it was up and down. They came back. Huffman became the CEO. Alexis was on the board. They were buddies. And then they had a falling out over how to handle uh, Black Lives Matter and death threats uh, in 2020. Uh, and I guess they haven't talked to him ever, uh, themselves ever since. And on the filing, Huffman, obviously, for some reason, uh, felt like he shouldn't mention that he wasn't the only founder. He He was one of two. He wrote the code, though. I'm told. Alexis said, he told me that Steve wrote it in Lisp. <laughs> it was rewritten shortly thereafter. Uh, he did mention, though, that Sam Altman owns 8% of the company. That was interesting, interesting wasn't it? There. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's my perspective. Sam is important to this story here because I think they should go to Wall Street and be like, we're, we're, you know, we are a social network, but we are an AI company. We have all the data that's necessary to train AI, uh, AI bots and LLMs. And look at this deal we just did with Google. Um, and if you want to invest with us, come along for the ride. Put us, make us part of our of your portfolio when you're investing in AI. We have the data. We have Sam Altman. Don't make us number one. Let Nvidia and all smart. that you know lead, but put us in the in the bucket. And that might be what saves this thing. But again, the risk is <laughs> do the does the Reddit army revolt? And they may, they might very well. Well, and this is a problem. Twitter has, Reddit has, Facebook has. None of these companies create the content. Uh, we create the content. And, you know, in the early days of the Internet, uh, remember IMDB uh, uh, or um, what was the um, CD? Was it CD? CDDB. CDDB, yeah. where users contributed all that content. And then these companies went on and sold to some, you know, big company like Condé Nast. And the, and the platform makers made all the money. But the people who actually made the content got nothing. And we've seen this happen enough times now that I think people are a little bit more suspicious reddit exists solely because of the 60,000 unpaid moderators who work every day labor every day on the site and the many hundreds of thousands of people who both read and write content on the site i think the bigger issue is not going to be that people are not getting paid as much as once that is a public company there are going to be issues around content moderation they're going to make going to make tough choices like right now there's still a lot of not safe for work content, obviously, on Reddit. It's sort of age-gated and it's in certain communities. But once they're a public company and they have to watch their stock price, and they have to attract major advertisers, and those advertisers may pull out if there's a scandal around that type of content. 
the choices thought, that they're going to make then are going to be very different from from what they've done in the past. But, I think. Uh, to, to be fair, we did think that would happen with Condé Nast, and it didn't. That is true. That is true. I think that was always a weird yeah. hands-off relationship. Yeah. And Condi really wasn't that happy as owners of Reddit. They managed to kind of put it off at arm's length. Um, 76 million people visit web, uh, web uh, Reddit website every day. So here's a fun stat. Yeah. Facebook had 410 daily active users when it filed to go public in 2012. Wow. Reddit has 72. So, uh, no, sorry. Facebook had 480 something. So, so Reddit has 100, uh, 410 fewer daily active users. Facebook did when it went public and it was founded a year later. So Facebook's 20 years, Reddit yeah. is 19 years. It's not and, growing. Um, it hasn't even reached the amount that Facebook had when it filed to go public more than a decade ago. Now, I know it's unfair to compare Reddit to Facebook, um, but when you're an advertiser, that's what you're doing. It's coming out of the social media budget. So it's it going to be a tough yeah. sell. It seems to me that uh, there's nothing you can do with Reddit. You can't really change it without killing it. Uh, it it's, it's probably closer to the Wikipedia, and they should probably have a, a similar monetization model. It should be probably supported by donations and other uh, types of revenue. Trying to turn it into Facebook is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Trying to turn it into anything yep. is not going to happen. Even even X, even Twitter, are adding phone calls, and it's going to be a super. It's going to be a super app, and they they're going to have you know tr- financial transactions, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I just it's I don't. There's nothing you can do with Reddit except let it be Reddit, and so they've got to find a way to monetize it in a better way than making it a public company. That's just gonna that's gonna cause problems. Didn't Jack I mean, the really? Argument is, go, ahead, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Yanko, please. I was going to say the counter argument is that on Facebook, Facebook has way more users, but for brands to target those users on Facebook, they have to sort of trust Facebook that the algorithm is really going to figure out who is into a certain brand based on profile and a bunch of sort of black box stuff that you can't really understand. On Reddit, you have communities and you can speak to that exact community. And if you're a company that's big enough, there's a community dedicated to you. There's a if you make a big popular product or service, there's a community re- uh, dedicated to that. So you can s- target these communities that are interested in your products, brands, services, whatever, with very pinpoint precision. I think that's a big upside for them, even if they're smaller. But you have seventy something million users as opposed to the other social networks, which have far more. And not only that, so it's a smaller pool. Not only that, you have to tailor make those ads for Reddit. So like I saw, I was on the front page and I saw Weight Watchers, for instance, had an ad. And it was in the Am I the Asshole format for like not eating certain foods. And it's like, no, <laughs> Smart. you're not. You can eat whatever. Smart. That's and, good. And it is, it's great advertising. I think it's actually going to be more effective than Facebook. But the question is, for a platform that size... And for the work that's necessary to go into the creative work that's necessary to go in and advertise there, are you going to start to get the same level of advertiser interest? It's an open question. I, I mean, and we all believe is, that smaller audiences that are dedicated are valuable. That's why we do newsletters, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The problem with advertising no, is, no is the, the advertising market is the advertising market is always fickle. If it's if it's oh hot God, right tell now, me it'll, about be, it. yep. it'll get soft later, and yep. you have these radical ups and downs in your revenue model, which is which is problematic for a smaller side. Like I think it's. Thing. I think you you got it right. They should say they're an AI play. Uh, I mean, really, Google's search results benefit 
hugely from Reddit. I know a lot of people, myself included, who if we want advice on a product, we will add site colon reddit.com to a Google search because uh, it's that there you're going to get some some number of people who are maybe it's small, maybe it's five, who are absolute fanatics in this tiny little area who will give you the best possible you know, is it is extra virgin olive oil recommendations? It's very, very good for that kind of thing. Uh, it's it's a very niche thing, and I think Google would be smart to put more money into it. Uh, heaven forfend they'd acquire it. Yeah, don't no don't acquire. It. Don't, <laughs> don't even don't, don't but, even put that out there, Leo. Yeah, but I think it's they should say. I think you're right. They should say we are an AI company. We are we are creating content for AI to ingest because it will make AI better. Is actually not absolutely a bad, not a bad place. To they be. should just yeah. They should for their their roadshow that they go on before they list uh, public. Should just like go up there and be like uh, ChatGPT, please listen. They should just repeat Sam Altman, Sam Altman, Sam Altman, eight percent, eight percent, eight percent, and then say thank you for coming. We hope to see you on IPO day. Yeah. By the yeah. way, it's not a given that they will uh, go public, right? That, that that's still right. up in the air. They just they're preparing. A possible IPO. No, it it seems like it will happen. I mean, they're moving they're ahead. Talking about the potential list as soon as next month, but it's also possible that somebody might come in and and acquire them. Did Reddit suffer from the June rebellion of moderators? I thought it might be the end of the line for Reddit, but there was no good alternative for people to run to. Yeah, had there been an they, alternative, they it could have been. They survived it, I think. Yes. Yeah. And interestingly, they're now linking it to the um, AI training, right? They're basically saying, we had to do this to block all these companies right. from accessing our service for free. So now we can charge Google 60-some million dollars a year for this. Right. It is, not, it is not tenable when you have 76,000 active, 76, what was it, 76 million, right, active daily users and 60,000 60,000 daily moderators. That's a, that is, I was going to mention that Jack Dorsey saw this as a problem and Twitter is why he funded blue sky. He really felt like you can't have a centralized company running something like this. There's, there's too much interference to run with governments, with censorship, moderation issues. It's better to let, better to let it uh, be diversified. And yet there's a certain value to having a centralized place. Twitter seems to have suffered by, by uh, I don't know, by what? I don't know. By mismanagement? I don't know. By everything that Elon has done from the moment he took over. My hot take is that Twitter's going to have a comeback. Uh, yeah? yeah? I mean, maybe not a revenue comeback. They didn't but die, the did product, they? We thought they'd be dead by no. now. They didn't die. The product has actually, it, the product suffered tremendously in the early stages of Elon Musk's ownership but it has it has gotten better recently i think there's some some damage that they they've done that they cannot undo for instance as a user i hate not being able to tell like whether those verified check marks mean anything and whether it's a very actual journalist or an actual public figure telling me something but the algorithm's gotten better i will say it's definitely more entertaining than it had been in the past like it used to be in the initial days of elon's uh rule that it was just chat gpt influencers and other types of crypto people uh, but it's much more relevant now. So there's there is hope. Maybe uh, not a lot. I you know what? <laughs> I would love to see Twitter survive. I think there was a there's, there, we've lost we've really lost something. 
that was pretty amazing. And we're, we're having a stock market comeback, right? We have the all-time highs in the S&P 500. And maybe Elon Musk says, listen, I've done what I needed to do. I've fixed it, quote-unquote, and sends it off to the public market again and <laughs> just gets out. It is ironic that the thing that Elon complained most about was bots and that Twitter is oh now God. far worse <laughs> when it comes to bots. Than ever before. I mean, anytime you post a tweet now, you get a uh, someone <laughs> replying you underneath, you know, private yeah. parts in bio. Yeah. It's bizarre. All right. little break. Uh, more to come with our fabulous panel, Alex Kantrowitz, uh, big technology podcast. Did you, you know, you, so many of our uh, best hosts are people like all three of you who've kind of worked for big media and then moved on. And done your own thing. And I guess that's true of me, too, come to think of it. Um, how long ago did you decide to start Big Technology? So I started it in May 2023. I think that's you were on the show, Buzzfeed. right, when you started it? Basically, just as I as I started. Yeah, that, yeah. that's right. And it is it has been a joy. So I, I feel like here's the progression. I needed to be in institutional media to kind of learn right. how to report and how this machine works and... Um, what editors and readers look for in a story. Like I couldn't have done this right off the bat, but I'm so happy to be independent now because it gives me the opportunity, like knowing what I know to say things I probably wouldn't be able to say if I was a, you know, a standard news reporter in a newsroom, whether it's feed or the Washington post or whatever it might be. Um, and I also think like we were talking about before last break, just the connection that you can make to your readers is so different because in a newsroom, you're just filling in kind of where the newsroom needs coverage, like at BuzzFeed in the pandemic. You know, I, they were like, all right, why don't you write about like people getting uh, refunds from Airbnbs and Verbo, which is an important story for a newsroom. But it gives you no, it gives a reader or a listener no right. sense as to like what I care about in the right. world. It's just, okay, I had to do it. Like, obviously, it wasn't the most pressing issue uh, for me. And like being able to do it now is is so great because there is this sense of like, I'll put things out there. People understand my viewpoint. You know, they email me or they, you know, give me feedback on social media. And then we were, we're in constant conversation. It's allowed me to find a, find a voice as well. So I love doing it. I think that's a great way of describing it. I feel bad for younger people who don't have the chance to work for institutionalized media because it's going away very rapidly and have to kind of yes. leap in on their own and never really do get that. That training, those training wheels, which I think are valuable. absolutely like without BuzzFeed, I wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Um, and now seeing BuzzFeed News is gone. Vice is gone. And, and for all their faults, and there were plenty of them, um, I, I still enjoyed reading them. And, you know, the information that they shared was great. Um, and they did have they were this on ramp because the thing is. When I broke into journalism, the traditional on-ramp was you, which was that you went to a local paper and then you went to a city paper, then you went state and then you tried to go national. That was already gone. So the other option was you go to a digital first type of company like a BuzzFeed. You learn how to report there and then you find your way. And now that's gone. So you're right, Leo. It is. It's quite sad. But I do think that these options like doing being able to do a podcast or being able to go on Substack for people that really know what they're doing, like I started doing doing my stuff part-time as a freelancer before I decided to go full-time. Mm. And I think there are going to be people that will be breaking in through these channels because 
digital media today lets anybody who has something insightful to say cut through the noise. Like that stuff will travel. And people that find it traveling, I think, will end up making it. So um, it's just going to be a little bit different than it has been previously. You, It's been fun watching you because you really have the passion and the drive. Drive I lost I years ago. To uh, to make yeah. <laughs> to make something great, <laughs> so it's fun to know. Yanko, you're pretty new at doing this on your own, yeah. I mean, yeah, relatively yes and no, because I used to freelance for a long time, so that sort of is comparable. Obviously, it's not speaking to an audience directly, but it like the fre- flexibility on the entrepreneurial part of it is sort of the same. I did write for, I worked for a Gigaom. I remember you from Gigaom. That's where I became aware of you. Yeah. How many years yeah, were you yeah. at Gigaom? Oh, a long time. It's yeah. sort of hard to say because I started for them also as part-time freelancer. Right. But yeah, I started there. Basically, it was my first English language outlet that I wrote for. Yeah. Well, we're so glad to have you in uh, lowpass.cc. I hope it's a great success. And Mike, you're you're kind of uh, the original on this, starting uh, with digital, becoming a digital nomad, uh, right? And and also, by the way, uh, Mike's list, which is currently on Substack, I launched it in the year two thousand. Wow! Believe it. Wow, that's a long time. And that replaced a newsletter that I had in the nineties that I launched in nineties. Oh, look, you got my new glasses which, on the front page. That's right. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so it's 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 been really gratifying. What I haven't done is what Alex is doing, which is full time on the newsletter. And I've really been, you know, I, I I still want to do the columns that I'm doing elsewhere, but I'm thinking of 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 doing like something close to two or three, four a day rather than once every other week or something like that. Wow. I've re- I've really had a really slow. Uh, and, and intermittent, because as you know, I'm super busy having fun and traveling and <laughs> it's hard work wine and being like a guest or no, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. But, um, but Substack is so gratifying uh, and it's so great that they handle all the annoying parts of publishing a newsletter. I used to do it the hard way. Then I did it the semi hard way on MailChimp and Substack is great. I think that's the other just, thing that's changed. And it's certainly uh, for Club Twit, it's been a big change is the, is the infrastructure that allows individuals to, uh, to you know, uh, build a business without having, a, you know, a, an accountant and all that stuff. Right. Well, that's especially true for you. Right. In, in the world of podcasting. When you started, it was like you were you were building everything from scratch. You were digging up iron ore to build the you know computer chassis and stuff just to do the <laughs> podcast. And nowadays, you know these cloud services. You're talking about using oh, AI to, to so put show notes and stuff. That yeah, yeah. You go to uh, there's the tools like uh, what's it called Riverside. They the show notes and and the and the transcript just happen. Right. I mean, we've actually like, been you know our studio lease goes through uh, the mid mid 2026. Uh, and it's pretty hard least to get out of. Nobody's going to sublet this. Uh, but I have to really say, I, I can't imagine after that having a studio. It's a huge overhead that really is no longer necessary. We needed it back in the day. We needed the TriCaster and the all the different right. technologies we had to invent, the Skyposaurus and all that stuff. You, you don't need that anymore. You could do it all easily. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Mike's but, other business, which he has interestingly managed not to plug, is Gastronomad. Immersive I'm happy to plug Gastronomad. <laughs> travel experiences. I've been on a Gastronomad trip, the amazing Oaxaca adventure. I cannot recommend them more highly. Small group adventures with Mike and his wife, Amira, who is an expert chef who makes 
all the contacts in, a, in an area like the, the Venice Gastronomad, Prosecco Hills, which is coming up, or the Morocco experience. Uh, I heard, I talked to uh, Julia and uh, Charlie about the El Salvador experience you did. Uh-huh. And yeah. they were over the moon on this one. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first one we ever did. We just did it in January and it was really, really fantastic. And in fact, uh, we're staying with a couple of friends here, uh, Dylan and Jessica, uh, here in Tasmania. And we met them on another Oaxaca experience wow. and became friends and they invited us to come to Australia. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's just the best thing ever. And it's becoming more and more valuable to people because tourism is becoming so blown out and over touristic yeah. and people are fed up with tourism and you know that is sort of like the airbnb experiences thing is kind of like you know everybody's been there done that kind of thing what we do is totally the opposite of tourism so we, cool. t- we go into people's homes we like our friends are chefs and wine makers and it's really 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 unique and yeah. so yeah. anybody wants it and and i would by the way we're talking about media if anybody is interested in this whole concept I would subscribe to our, our newsletter, which is free on the site, gastronomad.net. Uh, there's a newsletter uh, tab. And just sign up for our newsletter. We'll keep you posted on everything we do, and we'll give you tips and advice and ideas for travel. And so I would I would recommend that. Oh, so cool. And uh, I, it was one of the best trips I've ever taken with you and Amira. And the, yeah, thank you. About three other couples, four other couples. It was so amazing, so incredible. And you can put, you can put away the mezcal, uh, Leo. I was impressed. <laughs> my favorite moment and you took the picture was uh was that was that halloween was was that day of the dead it was day of the dead but it was it that day yes. you know what i'm talking about oh yes yes it was day of the dead uh when you got your soul purified <laughs> by, by a shower of mezcal coming yeah. from the mouth of a uh of, of somebody who purifies souls. A mescalito. Uh, for a living. Somebody, yeah. uh, some, it was an amazing um, and very cold <laughs> spray of mescal. <laughs> right. it, it, really, it really has a temperature. So ju- just to explain what, what, what was going on, it was a really special day. It was Day of the Dead. The government had banned visits to cemeteries. Because of COVID. And because of COVID. This was, what was it, two years ago or something. Mm-hmm. And so... We did, uh, we went to a, one of the most exquisite mezcal places where a friend of ours makes really amazing mezcal and they purified our soul through a ceremony that involved lots of herbs and mezcal. And then we had a great dinner with huge band. And then we went to a ceremony, a, a, a cemetery. How did we do that when it was illegal? Because it was a Zapotec cemetery. The Zapotec people don't consider themselves part of Mexico. They don't accept the authority of Mexican government over them. And they said they were never conquered by the Spanish or the Mexicans. And they didn't close their ceremonies. And we were invited to come to the ceremony in the Zapotec town. Incredible. And that was, that was a, one of the greatest experiences of my life personally. Um, and it was really a phenomenal day, but that was in fact, day of the dead. Yeah. Uh, uh, quite amazing. I'm, I can't find the uh, picture of me getting spritzed by Miss Cal, but probably just as well. But here's some of the, cemetery uh, images this i had just gotten a pixel yeah. six so i was trying yes. the uh, dark the uh, night uh, images that's the original right. and that's the pixel six fixing it pretty amazing uh, experience yeah. thanks very much to you and amira thank uh, you yeah we had an amazing uh, time 
And it's the last time I'll ever get spritzed down the neck with mezcal, I think. Never say never. Never say never. He also whipped me with herbs. <laughs> you didn't say that's the last time you're going to get whipped. By somebody. Not the that's last a, time we get whipped with herbs. I might, that might happen again. The food was also very good. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Our show today brought to you by Stamps.com. Stamps.com streamlines all your mailing and shipping to turbocharge your operational efficiencies. It's really like Stamps.com is like having a post office in your pocket. You can stay on top of things, even on the go. They've been a partner of ours uh, since 2012. We've been using them before then, but they started advertising on the show in 2012, 12 years ago. You've got to have heard the ads. If you haven't tried them yet, what are you waiting for? We love stamps.com. You know, if I ever need a postage stamp, I just go to Debbie and I say, print me some stamps. She fires up stamps.com and on our regular printer, prints up some forever stamps and I've got them. It's amazing. You can print right on an envelope. You can print package uh, labels. Postage rates keep going up. They just went up again. But you can save with Stamps.com, the best discounts in the industry, up to 89% off the U.S. Postal Service. Oh, and by the way, they do UPS as well. And they have equal discounts there. They automatically tell you your best, cheapest, fastest shipping options. All you need is a computer and a printer. And if you need a package pickup, you just schedule it through your dashboard. I love stamps.com. You will too. We've got an amazing offer for you. Keep your mailing and shipping moving at the speed of your business with stamps.com. When you use the promo code TWIT to sign up, it's easy. Go to the website, stamps.com. Click in the upper right-hand corner. There's a microphone. Click that. Enter TWIT. You'll get a four-week trial. You'll get free postage, a free digital scale, and no long-term commitments or contracts. It's really, there's no reason not to do it. Go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, enter the code TWIT, T-W-I-T. I guess it's only fair since you took the picture, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's in the Google Photos album that from the experience. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's where it is. Here, I'll pull it up for you. And it's this is why amazing. your soul is pure. <laughs> you got it right down the neck, kids. Yeah. By the way, my wife, and she will never, Lisa will never actually forget this, thinks I'm an idiot for agreeing to that. She said, no, nah, yeah, no, I, I'm good. <laughs> and that's why her soul is so impure. <laughs> Leah, did you get to drink any of that mezcal? Oh, just... good Lord. Mike, did we get to drink any mezcal? Uh, yeah, pretty much uh, at least two or three times a day. That was so. We did some mezcal tasting. We did a lot of stuff. You couldn't go we, anywhere. We yeah, they would no. they push it on you because Oaxaca is the it's, land of mezcal, and you can't. It's basically like tea in the Middle East. You sit down, you come over to somebody's house, and you're going to get mezcal. Mezcal. Uh, yeah. Is My favorite thing though wasn't it? the mezcal. It was the pulque, the precursor. Okay. Yeah. To mezcal, which is a fermented, they ferment fruit. I don't know if it's a they, precursor. They ferment agave. It's the same stuff they it make is, mezcal out of. It is a precursor. Of, they ferment okay. it yeah. rather than distill. Exactly. And that's, you know, uh, uh, pulque is, uh, you know, three, 4,000 years old. Uh, mezcal is about 300 years old. And to uh, answer your question, Alex, sometimes they do put a, a, an agave larva, which we call a worm in, mm -hmm. in mezcal. But there's 100 other things they put in it as well including scorpions in extreme cases. No. But most of the time, <laughs> That's all right. it doesn't it's have sterile. any of that stuff. 
<laughs> yeah, it doesn't have any of that stuff. The, the, the fact of mezcal that makes it so interesting is that they're literally like 50,000 different varieties yeah, based yeah. on the different variations of to, to, um, methodology, what you add to it, how you age it, how you how you cook it, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really amazing world. It's an amazing world to explore, and we certainly did. Oh, it was so much uh, fun. We went to a, a mezcal, several mezcal distilleries. In fact, the place I got uh, squirted also made uh, mezcal. Um, yeah, yeah, and they they it was the old old way of doing it. It was really fascinating, really interesting. Yeah, we had a great week this week on Twit. In fact, it was so good we decided to make a highlight reel. For those of you who might have missed any of the fun, watch. Oh, wait a minute. You were talking about volumetric lighting. Smoke. I have uh, the smoke alarms. Here we go. <laughs> the smoke it, machine. No. From the dead forward shot, it looks like you're really, really angry. <laughs> Previously on Twit, Mac Break Weekly. What about that thing Mark Zuckerberg said about the MetaQuest being the best VR helmet out there? Period. Trust me, he's really thrilled that Apple is in this market. It lets him sell people on the Quest 3 as a much more affordable alternative to the Vision Pro. It validates him in so many ways. Coming up on Hands on Windows, we're going to take a look at AI PCs. These are brand new Windows computers that have an MPU built in and can hardware accelerate AI tasks. Security Now. This has got to be the most underreported event that I can remember. The whole internet was at risk for the last couple months. What? And a group of researchers silently fixed it. What? Windows Weekly. Open AI down something called Sora. You see this Holy thing? cow, yeah. And Man, these are all from text prompts. That's what's amazing. People say things and they sound like exaggerations, you know. Um, people will talk, this is as big as the internet. I think this is This one is. This stuff. one is. It's, it's crazy. biggest. This week in Google. Did you guys experience the chat GPT hallucination? I didn't. I mustn't yesterday? have used it last night at the right times. Here's a couple of examples. <laughs> of notes, <laughs> Cater type requires an Bitalampara Paja Punto. Let me encyclopedes me. See? Smiley face emoji. The thing is, to chat GPT, this makes just as much sense as anything as else. Because yeah. it knows That's no true. sense. Twit. Bring your brain. We'll do the rest. Good Thorpe. And Viathon. Good Thorpe and Viathon. Good Thorpe. Julia. I want more sign-offs specifically in that style. <laughs> By the way, that was Molly White, uh, the creator of uh, Web3 is Going Just Great, who was our guest on uh, This Week in Google last Wednesday. She is wonderful, and we will uh, have her back. You might have heard what Steve said on Security Now. You should listen to the episode from Tuesday. He was referring to, get this, a 24-year-old... It's been around for 24 years, security vulnerability called Key Trap, which was such a trivial, simple bug. Uh, a single malicious packet could literally stall an entire DNS server. Enough packets, you could have had bad guys discovered this, taken the entire internet down. Uh, fortunately, it's been patched. But it was a fundamental design flaw in the DNS system. And uh, this uh, team from Germany, Athene, uh, discovered it. They called it Key Trap. They gave it a CVE and were able to get it fixed. So, But 34% of the uh, DNS servers in North America alone use DNSSEC. Uh, that means that they one-third of all the servers were vulnerable. It has There was apparently nobody had discovered it until Athene discovered it. Orthini and uh, a bullet dodged, as Steve said. 
quite the story. Wonder what else is lurking out there that well, we haven't discovered. Well, God, yet. 24 years. Exactly. Uh, it, 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 we're hanging by a thread, folks. <laughs> this whole thing could go at any moment. Speaking of bugs, Microsoft has fixed the browser. Can I put this in air quotes bug that Edge had that was stealing Chrome tabs and data for months? If you had Edge running, it would just, you know, as a convenience to you, import all of your Chrome tabs and data. People have been complaining about this for months on Reddit and elsewhere. Microsoft finally acknowledged, oh, yeah, uh, sorry. So they've they've turned that feature off. Uh, thank goodness. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. As they were expanding their network, it was suddenly uh, what was it a function that malfunctioned? <laughs> uh, yeah. These things happen. Mistakes happen, as you know. Speaking of mistakes, I don't know if it's willful a mistake or or uh, Mike Gallagher, a member of Congress, is wrong. But according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, Elon Musk could be withholding satellite internet in Taiwan. Uh, the StarShield service, which is uh, a service that uh, SpaceX uh, has offered to the Department of Defense for, for uh, DOD use, um, designed to provide secure satellite communications and other services for national security customers, Apparently doesn't work in Taiwan. At least that's according to Mike Gallagher, who is a Republican congressman from Wisconsin, wrote a letter to Elon saying, hey, uh, <laughs> what gives here? It's inactive uh, near and in Taiwan. Now, let's remember that Elon has business with mainland China, which has always said Taiwan is not separate from China. Uh, I think uh, something like 25% of 22% uh, of Tesla's revenue comes from China. It, I guess the the implication is that Elon, in his sensitivity to uh, Chinese uh, feelings, has decided not to provide. Or, or, yeah, I mean, we don't know for sure. I mean, it's an election year, and um, oftentimes members of Congress right. will come up with something that plays well with the base that has the right uh, amount of xenophobia and uh, and fear-mongering and turn out later to be something other than what they claimed. Still, it, it's also, this is the big fear that we had with Elon Musk when he was in the process of acquiring Twitter, which is that, you know, in order to sell Teslas in China, will he censor for the Chinese Communist Party? Will he do this? Will he do that? And that's one of the problems with uh, somebody with as much power as Elon Musk, who has interest, financial interests in China. To, to what extent will he, uh, will he help them, you know, prevent Taiwanese, for example, from getting internet service? We don't know yet. But I would, I would take this with a grain of salt until we know for sure what, what's happening uh, exactly. Uh, but it, but this is a fear with with Elon Musk. He's got too much power and too many financial interests in China. And by the way, so does Apple. Don't we think that this is a problem for the U.S. government also that it's relied on such an important piece yes. of infrastructure to be built by the private sector? Not by the way, it's yep. not the first time we're seeing this. Like we also have this in Ukraine, where like basically the United States and and the the you know European coalition is effectively beholden to Elon to continue to providing uh, internet access to the Ukrainian army. And he's turned it off at points. So like this is one of the things that if you're a government, you, you run, you don't walk to build on your own. But yet instead of doing that, we have Mike Gallagher writing letters about Elon Musk. Like we need to 
out a way to get this thing to not be dependent on one person. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just you know uh, internet connectivity with with uh, you know I mean it, it, there are many many governments now that have space programs and and the first thing you do if you have a space program is satellites. Literally fifty percent of the satellites orbiting the Earth right now are owned are by Elon's. SpaceX. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. Wow. Uh, the FTC, you know, is getting a lot of uh, hits for uh, various things they're up to. I think this is one we could all agree uh, is deserved. They have cracked down on H&R Block for deleting tax data when users want to downgrade. It's very easy to upgrade from their free tax service to a paid service. It's seamless. But the FTC says in an administrative complaint it issued yesterday, or sorry, Friday, that H&R Block designed its online products to present an obstacle course of tedious challenges to consumers pressuring them into overpaying for their products. It's called dark patterns. Learn the language, FTC. Uh, and you know this what? Anybody so who's ever used H&R Block, as I have, or uh, I use TurboTax, same thing. They're, f they're full of dark patterns. It's free. It's free. And then you get to, oh, but you want to file them. Oh, well, that'll cost you $89. It's full of that yeah. stuff. And here, as we get in close to tax season. I just want to give a standing ovation to the FTC here. FTC, Yay. I've been critical of you at times, but this one, you deserve a standing ovation. Right on. Because these tax companies are liars. And it, it just like they're getting away with it without any recourse. And to have the FTC take the stand and say, no, you can't promise free tax prep to people if you're not giving them free right. tax prep. Right. This is exactly what the agency was this created This is what for. they're supposed to do. So standing ovation, Lena Khan, you don't get it all right, but this one certainly did. I will defend Lena Khan to the death. I think she's the, she's the best FTC chairman we've had in long, long time, in my memory for sure. Uh, and this is not something we didn't know about for years. ProPublica five years ago did an investigation that found H&R Block was among several other tax prep services that kept Google from showing the free offerings and search results. Well, you can't search for those. Uh, I mean, Turbo TurboTax also, like, they, oh, yeah. they have such a sneaky thing where they will add, like, an extra $40 to your, <laughs> to your tax prep. Well, you wanted and to file state returns? I, oh, well. Oh, my God. I've done it a few times where, like, I, I finished and I was like, all right, I had one price the whole time. I signed up, and next thing I know, it's like, you know, almost double. And then you write to them, and you're like, oh, so they're like, oh, sorry, we'll refund, because it gives you nothing. But you, I don't even know where, where I could. And I, I pay attention when I'm on the internet. Yeah, so. I use TurboTax to do my mom's taxes. She's 91, and they're pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I get caught every time. I almost always just say, yeah, take my $89. Right. Yeah. It's Crazy. fine. <laughs> they, they get me every single time. Uh, I want to end on a happy note. So I will be very happy to report that uh, the the entire knowledge of human civilization is now safely backed up on the lunar surface. You may have been following uh, the, uh, the mission uh, of this uh, intuitive machines IM-1 lunar lander, the first time we've landed on the moon since Apollo. Uh, you may remember that it was actually quite a story about the landing. Uh, they somebody <laughs> somebody forgot to flip a switch uh, before takeoff that would turn on these special cameras that were designed to help the lander uh, 
land uh, on the moon, and as a result, it was coming in blind. Let me see if I can find this, because this was such a great uh, software fix. It turned out uh, that there was um, a package, a scientific package, already on the, the, the lander with LiDAR and some other stuff available to it. So they scrambled at Intuitive Machines and got that package working. And in fact, were able to touch down on the moon. Uh, the laser range finder on the, on the uh, lander were not working properly because somebody forgot to turn it on. So controllers uploaded a software patch to, uh, on the lander to use in their place to use a, a, a NASA Doppler LiDAR payroll it was originally going to be a technology demonstration to help it land. And it did, except it tripped. <laughs> it missed a boulder, apparently, and one of the legs of the lander hit the boulder and the lander landed on its side, which is why they've had a little trouble communicating. But it is communicating and many of the payroll packages uh, will work. The landing was the first on the moon by a privately developed spacecraft the first soft landing on the moon by any American spacecraft since, since 1972. Um, it was a NASA commissioned project, though, so it was it was a NASA uh, payload. The mission carried six NASA payloads through the Commercial uh, Lunar Payload Services Program. But also on there were some non-NASA payloads. Uh, Columbia Sportswear <laughs> had some jackets on there. They say to test as an insulation for a propellant tank. But really, I think it was an ad for Columbia Sportswear. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the International Lunar Observatory Association put two astrono astronomical cameras up there. Jeff Koontz provided an artwork called Moon Phases. That's the part that landed face down, by the way. Well, okay, so it's there. But no one was going to be able to see it anyway, right? So now it's face down. But the most interesting, by the way, there was another one, the Eagle Cam, built by students at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Eagle Cam was designed to be ejected from the lander during its descent and then reaching the surface ahead of the lander so that they could get pictures of it landing. Did that work, John? Do we know? They didn't eject it. They, it didn't eject. So no pictures. Too bad, because we'd like to see the, see the sideways thing. But the thing that I got my attention, and this is... Uh, written by a Nova Spivak, who was with the Arch Mission Foundation. They sent up a lunar library made of thin sheets of nickel called nanofiche that are practically indestructible and can withstand the harsh conditions of space. What's on those thin sheets of nickel? A backup the of... Wikipedia! The Wikipedia! You're right! A backup of human knowledge that can now endure untouched on the moon for eternity, which might beg the question, why? Uh, and how do we edit it when things change? <laughs> right. So on there, the Wikipedia, you got it, six million articles, the English language Wikipedia, Project Gutenberg, 70,000 public domain e-books. Uh, uh, I mean, it's all the good stuff, you know, the Dickens stuff, the... Well, you know, Robert Louis Stevens is all public domain uh, novels and, and books. Plus, David Copperfield's tricks. So this is a little strange. David Copperfield's what? magic secrets. 
the secrets to what? all his greatest illusions, including how he will make the moon disappear in the near future. And I'm thinking, first of all... Don't tell the moon. Don't tell yeah, the right, moon. exactly. <laughs> We're going to make you disappear. Please don't tell anybody. Um, he must have paid for this, right? He is a billionaire. He's he's made a lot of money. He's not... I would say he's arguably not the best music, magician in the world. I would have much rather known how Penn and Teller did their tricks. Yep. But he must have paid them some money for this. It's just publicity because... <laughs> Except that I was thinking, what if arch you know, ain't, you know, in distant future, a, a, an intelligent species comes and they land on the moon and they find this thing and they realize there's something on there and they open it up and they see David Copperfield's magic secrets. What are they going to think? Is it like, yeah, he must have been the leader of of the of the <laughs> civilization, right? And and why was he sawing people in half? And like, <laughs> what the? What's going what on? What the hell? Long Now Foundation's seven thousand. Record the Rosetta Project of 7,000 human languages, selections from the Internet Archives Collection, the SETI Institute's Earthling Project with 10,000 vocal submissions representing Humanity United. Why do they have to send this to the moon? I don't know. The Arch Mission Primer, which teaches a million concepts with images and words in five languages. I think that maybe they're thinking, you know, if it all goes to hell on the Earth... At least it will all be up on there on the moon. But then the only way you'd get That's to reassuring. it is to have enough technology to go back and right. get it. By which time all well, of this that, is useless. That's basically, uh, that's kind of sort of what happened in uh, Space Odyssey, where uh, where there was a monolith buried on the moon. It was the technology to go find it and dig it up and then expose it to sunlight that triggered much of what happened in the movie, right? right? So so it's kind of sort of like a that. A radio message I, I do, to Jupiter. And then yeah. when you get to Jupiter, you find out all these worlds, except one, are yours, right? Like, don't go near right. us. Except, right? except Europa. Except Europa. The aliens will get to the moon, and they'll be like, wow, they, they messed that planet yeah. up real good. <laughs> yeah, no wonder. No wonder like, they left us No something. wonder there's just a smoldering boulder where the Earth used They couldn't be. even land this rover right. What happened? I guess they were drinking way <laughs> too much like sideways, before they sent it out. sideways rover lying there. Help me, <laughs> help me. Trick. Oh, my God. The entire <laughs> civilization's records. This is the third in, time in, they've tried to do this, by the way. They failed two times yeah. before. Right. Um, here's... <laughs> Here's what Nova Spivak writes. Uh, uh, we have safeguarded our cultural heritage far beyond Earth, ensuring that no matter what the future holds, our history, knowledge, and accomplishments, and our best magic tricks will persist untarnished on the moon for eons oh to come. These people don't it's, take themselves too seriously at all. Yeah. It's, and it's not that far. It's not that 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 far removed from the earth. It's kind of right there. But um, the, the big note. So in keeping well, with you your say it's right there, but it took a us a note. long time to get there. I mean, it wasn't the yes, easiest. But it's in, 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 in the universe scale, right. the earth and the moon are essentially touching. But but the the the, the good news is that we're actually at the cusp of a, of a new era of space exploration, which is really, really exciting. There was a great article in The Atlantic from uh, Marina Corin uh, called Apollo Sequel Will Be a Gold Rush. And I don't know if anybody's seen the TV series uh, For All Mankind, but it's it's starting to look like a For All Mankind kind of a thing. 
So just briefly, For All Mankind is a alternative history where the Soviets beat the Americans to the moon. The space race didn't end with moon exploration, but actually heated up and a lot more money was plowed into it. And then they go into the future, uh, into Mars exploration and everything else. We're about to, and it was all public, private, a lot of public, private stuff. Some of the most advanced technology was private companies. There's an Elon Musk-like character at some point who shows up with his own space program. And so this is a great series, but but over the next like five years, 10 years, it's going to look a lot more like this series where the where there's private companies, lots of countries are going to be having space programs of their own. A lot of moon exploration, probably a permanent uh, presence by the United States on the moon and probably a couple of other countries. Uh, serious, uh, you know, the U.S. is getting serious about Mars. And so it's uh, it's really an exciting, I think it's going to be an exciting decade for, for space enthusiasts. And and also there's been this argument made that the moon is sort of a pit stop on the way to the Mars, right? Where you could like maybe stop and re recharge or whatever. So you could also see it the other way around. If anybody ever comes to visit us, maybe they're going to stop on the moon first. They're going to look at this rover right. and they're going to read all this stuff and then they're going to and then turn around plans, and go back. Maybe change the travel <laughs> a little bit to find a way around this. Who knows? We figured out how to we, how to play the nickel microfiche. And here is what it says. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to turn around and... This, That's all it is. It's just yeah, one video. It's just, it's just right. Rick Astley. Over. You see this guy who never saws them in half? <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting. I mean, look, and it's one of the reasons we, we launched a show called This Week in Space, because I felt the same way, yeah. Mike, that we are on the precipice yeah. of something very exciting. It's, I mean, you and I grew up watching, uh, you know, space exploration. Um, yep. uh, you know, the last time we landed on the moon, I was 16 years old. It's been it's been a while, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's fun to see it happen again. I don't know. The same arguments are going to pop up that popped up in the '60s, which is well, so what? Why we've got real problems here at home? Why are we spending billions to do this? And I guess it's just it's human nature that we want to explore, and um, it's not it's a small percentage of our overall expenditure. Well, that that was actually one of the uh, things that. Um was interesting about the show for all mankind and which I think is true. And I think it's actually been demonstrated by the Apollo program, which is that, you know, for every dollar you spend in space exploration, you tend to get, you know, $30 back in, in economic value. Do you, in terms of the in do you really? Stuff like that. In do the you? series, actually the Soviet union never falls because their, ah. their space exploration funds their country to the point where they don't have an economic collapse. So, I don't know. Yeah, how did that it, work out? Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. So it's, you know, I, I, I tend to think that if you, if you want to justify it in terms of dollars and cents, you can, I think it's pretty easy to do that. But. Well, I don't know if that's, it's the also case, cool. But. Like we should, we definitely should have something in our budget for like cool stuff. Yeah, it's cool. Like municipalities do yeah. fireworks. Federal government right. should do space. Exploration. It's like fireworks. It's just like, you're right. Cool yeah. budget. It just makes you cool feel good. Budget. It's yeah. less than the entire amount of, of money we spend on pizzas every year in this country. So it's, you know, it's like that. It's and that just, pizza money is money well spent. So I, certainly nobody's complained about I, that. I'm contributing to a large percentage of that budget. <laughs> well, if your pizza's here, it's good because uh, we're about to wrap this sucker up. Thank you, Alex, for being here. Alex Kantrowitz, host of the Big Technology Podcast, the Big Technology Newsletter at BigTechnology.com, the author of Always 
day one. Boy, the guests you have on your show, spectacular. Uh, I will definitely be listening to the NVIDIA show. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, that's coming up Wednesday. Yeah. We, we definitely, I'm very stoked about our lineup. We have, yeah, NVIDIA show coming up and then uh, Ryan Peterson from Flexport's coming on. We have, um, yeah, lots, lots of good stuff. Nice, the way. nice. All at BigTechnology.com. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Great being on. Leo, Thanks great talking here. with you. Thanks yeah. for having me. I wish I'm going to have to listen to that Den's uh, interview. I was a big fan of oh, yeah. Foursquare. Yeah, he has this. I'd be curious what he's up to. He has this very cool new app that he's working on called Bebot. And basically, it's a. Um, he thinks audio is uh, the next audio augmented reality platform. So the co-founder like, and former... Oops, sorry, I started playing the podcast. Yeah. I'll wait till I get it's, home. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's location. I love that, Leo, by the way. That's what we want, by the way. Um, thank you for that. I can't wait to but hear yeah, it. Bebot is huh? location-aware uh, audio notification. So you could be walking oh. through a city listening to a podcast. I love that. And then for like 10 seconds, Bebot will come in and be like, hey, by the way, there's an event going on you know, to your right, like tomorrow night. Lisa like and I or did this. that in Rome. We mm-hmm. downloaded, uh, or I guess it was on our phone, it was an app that when you walked by something would say, oh, you see that? And it would tell yeah. you what it was. And then you kept walk- it gets silent and then you keep walking. And every once in a while it pop up, oh, you know that thing on your right? That's a thousand years old or whatever. Yeah. It was better than having yeah. a guide. It was wonderful. So I'm yeah, with that him. That stuff is so cool. Yeah. And imagine it tells you like, oh, the restaurant you walk by, the chef special is, you know, a- ABC or something like that. And so just have this contextually aware buddy with you as you go through cities. I think it's awesome. I think that's what my new space glasses are going to do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I can't wait. It's your fault, Mike. I can't believe I bought those. What an idiot. You're welcome. <laughs> I You're held welcome. off my, on the Meta Ray-Bans, and I ended up getting the Brilliant Labs frames. And I got the geekiest ones, too. What's the thing on the back? Is that a speaker? I think those are batteries or something. I don't know what those are. <laughs> Who knows? I'm wearing them to work the minute they come. <laughs> Mike's List, now for 22 years. Amazing. Four, uh, 24 years. 24 years. And uh, yeah. Yes. And thank you uh, all for subscribing to my newsletter if you want to check it out. Um, and um, also, one quick plug check out hellochatterbox.com. I don't want to belabor the point, but it's an awesome uh, edu- AI education. We talk a lot about AI, and now it's they're teaching students uh, prompt engineering as well as everything. This is else, Mike's so. son, uh, Kevin, who is so brilliant and came up with a wonderful thing for schools or even for parents at home who want to help their kids yep. understand technology, have some fun building a talking computer and, and programming it uh, so that you understand, you know, as, as we get into this AI world, having a kid know the difference between an AI and a, you know, a, a human in a box is very important. And this is a great yep. way to give them that kind of literacy, not just literacy and coding, but, but AI literacy. So hello. And it's the only box. smart speaker that's legal in school. That's COPA compliant. So if you're an educator, yeah. Uh, this is the only one you can use, and I would recommend it highly. Very nice. If you have a Raspberry Pi, uh, you can you can get this the everything else. And if you don't, they also sell a Raspberry Pi in a, a version as well. Hello, Chatterbox.com. Always like to give Kevin that plug. I think that's a really great yeah, thing. Yeah, thank you. And thank don't you so forget much. gastronomad.net and go on one of these wonderful trips that Mike and Amira put together. They are incredible. What's the next one? The next one is Mexico City in about three weeks or so. And uh, that's going to be super fun. Fun, fun, fun. 
Yanko Rutgers, his new uh, newsletter, lowpass.cc. And you were very kind to put a, a, a little special deal in our uh, Club Twit Discord. Thank you for doing that, Yanko. Sure, sure thing. Uh, we want to check it out. Yeah. So my newsletter is all about AR, VR streaming every week. I have a free and a paid tier. And if people want to check out the paid tier for free for a month, the coupon is in there. Very nice. Cup. Filtering the future. We also can see you on Fast Company and elsewhere. Always a pleasure to have you on. Always happy to be here. Thank you, Yanko. Thank you to all of you who joined us, especially our Club Twit members who make this show possible. If you're not a member, twit.tv slash Club Twit, please. Join the fun, join the community, support what we're doing. Uh, this show is available still for free, ad-supported. Yeah, we got still got some advertisers. Thank you to all of our advertisers. Uh, you can get a copy at twit.tv after the fact. You can also uh, go to YouTube. There's a full-time YouTube channel dedicated to This Week in Tech, the video of it. You can subscribe in your favorite podcast client. Uh, just search for Twit. All of our shows are uh, available that way. You can even watch us do it live. We stream the show while we're doing it, like right now, at YouTube, youtube.com slash Twit. We do that for all of our shows. Uh, and if you're in the club, of course, you can watch the live stream before and after the show as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks to uh, Benito Gonzalez, our producer, who does such a great job, chimes in from time to time. You're glad you're not working at Twitch anymore, right? Sure, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks to uh, John Jammerby Slanina, our studio manager, who got the smoke machine working, uh, and then it broke. That was it. That was his last act. We've got a Burke. Oh, Burke's fixing it? Well, not yet. We'll see. He's He's got, he's a, that's Burke McQuinn is, uh, is he's our, uh, Repair monkey. What is he? What do we call him? What's his official title? Studio engineer. Thank you. Much nicer than repair monkey. <laughs> but he is very good at fixing things. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here. Oh, he says now it may not be fixable. Well, how are we going to have fog in the studio if you don't fix the smoke machine? It was fun while it lasted, I guess. Yeah, we got it for the New Year's uh, Eve shows. But I think a little volumetric lighting is good on every podcast. We do Twit every Sunday from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific time. That's 5 to 8 Eastern. God knows what it is in Australia. Something like 9 a.m. Australia time. Uh, 2200 UTC. You could do the math. Uh, so watch us live if you want on YouTube or get the show after the fact. Either way, we're glad you were here. We hope we'll see you next time. And as I have been saying now for uh, 19 years, be 19 years in April. Holy cow. Another twit is in the can. Bye-bye. What, not 19 years? I was really hoping for Vietnam. Oh, <laughs> good. So okay, we'll do one, do one more time. And as we've been saying for 19 years, hard to believe, since uh, 2005 when we started this thing, good Thorpe and Vietnam. <laughs> this is amazing.